welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Matt Breed, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMA LOTN. This week we go over UFC 258, headlined by a welterweight fight between reigning champion Kamaru Usman and his former training partner or current training partner Gilbert Burns. Um, very much looking forward to this fight. Uh, very high level fight. I think this is the, the second toughest test for Kamaru Usman at welterweight as of as of this moment i think colby covington is still the one that will be most threatening to him to potentially take his title away but i do think that gilbert burns comes in as a close second some people might want to throw hamza chamaya's names out there but i don't rate him until he beats a legitimate guy and if he is able to beat a guy like leon edwards i'd be on the train of being like okay maybe he's a threat and it obviously depends on how he beats Leon Edwards for me to say that. But very good fight. Uh, decent card. You know what I mean? At top to bottom, I feel like we could get a little bit more uh, juice. Uh, but, you know, when, when you have Alexa Grasso and Macy Barber co-headlining the card, it kind of tells you the level that we're getting there. Another fun fight on the card. Um, uh, we got Jimmy Rivera versus uh, Pedro Munoz. This is actually a rematch of a fight that Jimmy Rivera won a couple years ago. Um, very fun fight. I'd say that's the one that I'm most excited about. But for sure, the Usman and Burns fight is most intriguing in terms of seeing if Usman can continue his welterweight dominance. But uh, yeah, great fight. Uh, happy that we're finally in the swing of things with the UFC schedule. This is our second event in an eight-week stretch where we're getting just back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back UFC events. And I'm very, very much excited for it. Feels like I'm back to normal. Feels like I'm comfortable in this chair again. Uh, you know, even if you give me one weekend off, I just feel so freaking rusty. But I'm happy to be back in this chair. All right. Um, before I kick things off, remember, uh, I have a great affiliation agreement with CoolBet.com. If you guys use the promo code MMALOTN2, that's the number two, you guys get 100% match up to $200 on your initial deposit. So make sure you guys check that out. There is a six times rollover on that as well. That's pretty much with any side if you take any bonus. So uh, make sure you guys check that out. The link is in the description below. But again, coolbet.com if you're in Canada. And I believe there's a couple of European uh, countries that are on board with that as well too. If you're in the States, unfortunately, you're out of luck there. But Coolbet, amazing site, amazing interface. Won a bunch of awards for being a great mobile product. And uh, I, I stand by them. They have great odds. They have great pricing. And you're able to prop, uh, parlay props which not allow a lot of sites allow for. So you can definitely get your degenerate action on with that. All right, let's get into the UFC Vegas 18 um, betting recap. Another losing event. Well, actually, we're one and three on events so far out of the four events that we've had this year. A very small win at UFC 257 last week. And unfortunately, we fall short. And uh, I've, I've finally fucking you know, not figured out, figured it out. I kind of understand why I've been on a little bit of a shit streak and I'll talk about it once I get through this uh, betting recap. Uh, but I, I feel rejuvenated. Obviously, it sucked that night losing that lock of the night bet. And we'll start off with that one, which was uh, originally supposed to be a five-unit parlay between Cody Stamen and uh, Mike Rodriguez. Andre Ewell pulls out. Cody Stamen obviously falls off that parlay. So we end up with five units straight on Mike Rodriguez, a m- minus 220. And I just... Had some butterflies in my stomach once that happened. Like once you take the Cody Stamen leg out of it, I'm just like, ooh, looks a little tough. But I was still very confident. You know what I mean? I I highly underrated the skills of Danilo Marquez, and I still do believe he's probably the one of the worst fighters on the on the roster. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's it was a tough one for sure. We, we saw pretty much right off the bat, Danilo was able to get the fight to the ground. But even when this fight was in the striking range and in the stand-up realm, we just did not see Mike Rodriguez get a strike swing. And I feel like that you have to attribute that to Danilo Marquez being able to nullify that by uh, with the with the takedown threat, with the grappling threat. So maybe that's why Mike Rodriguez wasn't really letting his hands go, and that you know that definitely really sucked. Um, so we lose on that. Uh, also had two units on Carlos Diego Ferreira at minus 120. Very impressed with uh, Benio Dariush's ability to continue his control even when it looks like he's tired as hell. You know, Diego Ferreira did a, re- a lot better of a job in terms of nullifying the type of game plan that uh, Benio Dariush was bringing in comparison to their first meeting. However, Benio was still able to be uh, just a step ahead. You know what I mean? In terms of grappling, uh, it seemed like Fejera was getting the better of the striking, but whenever that in, uh, happened, we saw Darius very successful in tying him up, dragging him to the ground, and landing some good shots from on top. Uh, so minus two units there. I had a 0.25 unit stab on uh, Justin James in round one at plus 600. Again, I picked Devontae Smith to win that fight. However, those odds were a little bit too crazy for me to pass up and you know whatever i don't mind losing 0.25 units there for that uh for that bet and then the only bet that wins for the night that i wish i went even harder on because i was so freaking confident in it at 1.5 units at plus 140 on lara procopio she goes out there and does exactly what i thought she would against molly mccann i do i did say that i thought procopio would be able to submit her however mccann does show some good um, you know, submission defense in that fight, and Procopio just does a good job of controlling her for 15 minutes, and uh, she pulls out the victory there. So that was plus 2.1 units. At the end of the day, we're minus 5.15 units with one more play still to go. Uh, we had um, Timur Valiev in a parlay with Kamaru Usman coming up this weekend. Uh, so we have a pending play on this still, um, and I believe that parlay closes at minus 130 if Kamaru Usman's actually able to cash it for us. Now, talking about like the, the, the follow from him and, and doing the cl- quick analyzing of my past results as to why I've been hitting a bit of a shit streak. And it seems glaringly obvious. You know I mean, I'm, I'm investing too heavily in some of these bum fights, per se. And I don't mean any disrespect to some of these fighters, but like there's a clear difference between when I'm hitting my plays and when I'm losing my plays. Like I'm losing with Mike Rodriguez. I'm losing with... Um, uh, Cleo Roundtree versus Marcin Pracnil. I'm losing with Munir Lezez, who's very unproven at this point in time. I'm losing with, well, the Ponzinibbio on Lijing Liang over. I'm not really an overs guy, so maybe I got a little bit too overs out there. I'm winning with Jose Aldo. I'm winning with Gabriel Benitez against Justin James. I'm winning with Miguel Baeza against Takashi Sato. You know, the, the, the wins are coming from guys that are quality opponents that are proven guys that are proven fighters that are reliable fighters again another shit one Luis Kosi versus Sasha Platnikov to go under one and a half that was heavily reliant on Kosi going out there and getting the finish he just wasn't um Sean Strickland beating uh, or sorry Abdul Razak Al-Hassan to knock out Kylan Williams that's in line with my Danilo Marquez fade which is I thought Kyla or Chaos Williams was just not that good however he still had the knockout power and he was able to put out the lights of uh, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan uh yeah it, it's just I gotta stay away from investing heavily in these low-level fights I don't mind betting on the low-level fights but I just can't make them lock of the night plays yeah, I mean, I need to bank on guys like uh, the Jose Aldo's, the Sean Strickland's against Jack Marshman's, you know, the 
the just these high level guys, Colby Covington against Tyrone Woodley, those guys are reliable. So that's the difference I'm trying to make moving forward here now. And I think I made that uh, adjustment here for UFC 258, where I believe my lock of the night play, which I've already locked in, uh, I believe is a very high-level opponent and has high-level skills and is very reliable. So I hope that he comes through for me. All right, that's the betting recap of UFC Vegas 18. Uh, before we get into the breakdowns, I do want to plug the Patreon. As always, 5 bucks a month, you guys get all early access to my breakdowns as well as uh, all of my official picks, not to mention my um, uh, best bets and props article as well as an amazing Discord community. Everybody's super supportive. Everybody's super helpful. And not only do we cover UFC and MMA in the, in the Discord, but we have a lot of guys that are invested in other sports and they are more than happy to share their plays with the rest of the Discord community. So that's a solid spot for you guys to hop in on so i'd be more than a welcoming of you guys with open arms i think it's a great steal for five bucks a month i know there's a lot of other people now uh making their own patreons and and following the trend setup if you want to call it uh but the, you know they're trying to squeeze out a couple extra bucks with the 10 15 and 20 bucks um but I, i'll i'll never stop it i'll always be five dollars a month and then I'll obviously have that super uh, supported here which is 10 bucks a month but that's totally on the 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 patron themselves whether they want to uh, you know go 10 bucks a month or five bucks a month you get the exact same content it's just whether you want to be a little bit more generous or not so appreciate all the 220 ish uh current patrons hope to get that number up hope to hope to get this shit streak gone because i know that's been really uh, impacting my numbers on the patreon but once we get these uh wins under our belts and once we start to dust this uh the shit streak off of us i know we'll start to continue to grow that community and i'm really looking forward to it also, just a reminder, I'm always dropping my DFS show on Sal Vetri's channel. Make sure you guys go check that out. Uh, the aim is to get it out for Thursday afternoons. However, it always depends on whether there's a late notice fight, whether we have access to salaries or not. But as of right now, we should be getting salaries uh, today, and I will be recording the show tomorrow. So I am expecting a Thursday release, but who knows during this whole COVID era what the hell is going to go on. But uh, yeah, your boy's busy. Your boy's got a lot on his plate. You know what I mean? Uh, but I'm making it work, and I appreciate all the support. If you guys haven't already, make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe below. Helps your boy out a ton. And then if you want to go that extra mile, hit up the Patreon. The link is in the description below as well, too. All right. I'm a quick my jibber-jabbering. Let's get into the breakdowns. Appreciate you guys checking out the episode. And I'm hoping that I can give you guys some solid insight for this UFC 258 card. Enjoy the breakdowns. Andre Ewell versus Chris Gutierrez. We got this at a catch weight of 140 pounds considering the short notice nature of this fight. But in terms of odds, we got minus 170 for Chris and plus 145 for Andre Ewell. Let's start off with Ewell, who was scheduled to fight Cody Stamen last weekend. Unfortunately for him, he tested positive for the COVID-19 and, uh, you know, just wouldn't wasn't able to meet the criteria in terms of completing his 10-day quarantine before jumping into uh, his fight with Cody. And it's very unfortunate for Cody Stamen as well, too, who, you know, did get a short notice replacement. However, that short notice replacement uh, fell out the day of the fight. And now we get Andre Ewell uh, being the first one who actually ends up getting his fight. So we know what we're getting with Andre Ewell. 
fast hands, solid striking, very lanky for the division as well too at 5'8 with a 75-inch reach. Um, uses his range quite well, uses his speed very well too, and I think his best attributes are his hand speed and his striking. More, more often than not, just with his hands. He has decent kicks in there as well too, and he does a decent job of maintaining distance every now and then, but... Uh, we have seen guys like Inero and Rivera go in there and actually land some good shots on him. Obviously, he goes on to beat Irwin, uh, but you do see later in the fight that that distance management management starts to dwindle, and we see the uh, the distance start to get cut. Uh, Jonathan Martinez, that was a very close fight, and then Marlon Vera, we saw go in there and just absolutely put it on Andre Ewell, eventually finishing him later in that fight. Uh, now, with Chris Gutierrez, the thing that's been big about him as of late is his calf kicks. And it really came to fruition in his fight against Vince Morales, where he's able to take him out relatively quickly with a bunch of uh, calf kicks and uh, just, you know, d did a very, very good job of implementing that, hiding them behind strikes, fainting them, really getting his opponents to bite on them, and then following up with another calf kick. So, uh, I'm a big fan of guys that are able to use calf kicks. Another guy on this card that utilizes them quite well is Diego Lima, which is why I kind of not favor Diego in that fight, but I think that he's liver than the odds actually suggest. Chris Gutierrez is pretty much building his game off of that, and the guy, at, the guys at Factory X Muay Thai, uh, specifically Mark Montoya, has drawn up great game plans in terms of being able to utilize that very effectively in his UFC fights. Now, last time around, we saw him go to a draw against Cody Durden in a fight where that entire first round he just gave away with Cody Durden taking him down almost immediately and then just riding out that back control for the entirety of it. Did a good job in terms of fending off any of the rear naked choke threats that were coming his way, but we still saw um, Durden, you know, maintain that control for, you know, the, the majority of that first round, which is why a lot of people gave him a 10-8 in that round. The next two rounds, we see Chris go to work with the calf kicks, really start to damage the durability and the movement of Cody Durden, which is why we have ended up getting a draw in that fight. It's simple scoring, 10-8 in that first round for Cody Durden, and then the next two rounds for Chris Gutierrez. Now, here against Andre Ewell, uh, he will have a one-inch height advantage, but he will be at an eight-inch reach disadvantage. However, I don't think that matters when you have those calf kicks of a Chris Gutierrez. Like, his hands are okay. They're good enough to kind of uh, hide the, the calf kicks that are coming behind it. But I truly am stumped in terms of how you will, will deal with it. Like, you will, will need to, you know, he does fight in a kind of a long stance, and he's going to have to rely on his ability to get in and out and land his strikes, and I think he's going to be eating some calf kicks on the way in. I, I've always said now, like, the, the guys that show the best um, counter or the best um, strategy against calf kicks are, one, guys that are able to fight in switch stances, uh, which I don't believe that Andre Ewell is completely comfortable in doing. And two, if you're a high-level Muay Thai player yourself, you, you kind of expect those calf kicks and you do a really good job of checking them. Perfect example, Rafael Faziev versus Marquis Casey. That's the one that I'm always going to bring up in these instances. I just don't see that from Andre Ewell, and I feel like we'll see Chris actually exploit, exploit that. At minus 170, though, I'm a little bit skeptical. I don't want to play Chris at, the, at that type of chalk, as I do believe that the better hands are going to come from Ewell. And again, given his 8-inch reach advantage, I think he could have success there. However, how long is that going to hold up, uh, you know, in comparison to how many uh, calf kicks he's going to have to eat and how quickly that's going to catch up to him and really start to affect his mobility and uh, his ability to get in and out and land those strikes. 
So I do lean on the Chris Gutierrez side of things. It's so hard to go up against a guy that has such an effective game plan and guys just can't do really anything about it. Like if we see Andre Ewos completely nullify and stunt the the brunt of those uh, those calf strikes from Chris Gutierrez, then okay, maybe I'll start to back off the Gutierrez train. But I think he goes in there and absolutely chews up that lead leg of Andre Ewell. And I think uh, Ewell will have a lot of difficulty in terms of keeping his um, game plan going with the strikes. And it's not even like Ewell can really lean on wrestling or, or jiu-jitsu of any sort. I just don't think he's at that level in terms of completely grinding out a guy like Chris Gutierrez on the ground or up against the cage or even in the jiu-jitsu realm. So I do lean Chris. I do think he wins this fight by Chippity chopping those legs away. I think that... Uh, whether it's a decision or a late finish, I think those leg kicks will start to catch up. And it's just so weird to say just because like, it's kind of like fighting Khabib in the sense of you know the takedown is always coming, but you can't do anything to stop it. With Chris Gutierrez, you know those calf kicks are coming, and more often than not, people can't do anything to stop it. Cody Durden was able to kind of, you know, uh, preserve his durability because he was able to take him down in that first round and control him and still you know eat the kicks for the next 10, 10 minutes and still keep on moving forward even though he lost those next two rounds whereas Andre Ewell I don't think he has that ability to take this fight to the ground and control Chris in those situations so again I'll lean Chris maybe a late finish maybe second or third round finish um, and I wouldn't mind seeing what those props are either because I think um, those are very live to hit I'm not sure if we actually, yeah, we, there are no props out actually, um, given that this fight was just announced yesterday. So I'll go with Chris Gutierrez, probably second or third round uh, TKO. I wouldn't mind taking a stab at one of those two round props as well, as I think that, uh, you know, if he's able to impl implement it nice and early, I don't think you will, will be able to eat it for 15 minutes and keep on chugging. So I'll go with Chris Gutierrez to win this fight via KO in the second or third round. Jillian Robertson versus Miranda Maverick. We got plus 120 on the Canadian Jillian Robertson and plus, or sorry, minus 140 on Fear the Maverick, Miranda Maverick. Um, we'll start off with the Jillian Robertson side of things where she's coming off a decision loss to Tyler Santos, who just clearly showed she was a stronger woman and she was able to stay out of the submissions of uh, Jillian Robertson. And I feel really bad for Jillian because there were some very near submission attempts where she was throwing up arm bars, throwing up triangles, but it seemed like she was just in a bad position, like being up against the cage and not really able to fully extend. And then also, uh, you know, getting these near submissions near the ending of the round and not really getting the extra maybe 15, 20 or 30 seconds that she needed to complete those. Um, she's coming off of, before that she was coming off of two wins over Courtney Casey and Poliana Botelho submitting one and going to a decision with the other. Um, and those were two fights where I actually took the under two and a half as well. And uh, more often than not, these Jillian Robertson under two and a halfs are the spots I'd like to 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 look at. And this this fight is no different. Uh, and the Casey one, it came a little bit too late. I think it was a minute and a half too late where she ended up locking up the submission. And then the Poliana Botelho fight, you know, that was a fight where we saw Jillian Robertson with the top control for the majority of that fight, but we just didn't see Poliana do anything to try to get back to her feet. I, or it might have been the other way around, but regardless, we just didn't see the urgency from Botelho in terms of trying to get back to the feet, uh, which, you know, usually opens up the submission paths for Jillian Robertson. So Jillian just pretty much won that fight off of control. 
we saw her get pretty much laced up by uh, Macy Barber. She wasn't successful in getting that fight to the ground long enough to pull off a, a submission. And we know the striking game of Robertson is very, very much lacking. And then obviously the fight before that, she mounted Sarah Froto and got a beautiful KO uh, via ground and pound there. That's pretty much Jillian Robertson's game, though. She's diving for uh, takedown. She's going for the single leg. And I think that's pretty much, uh, you know, what her game is is based around. And it's very easy to prepare for a woman like Jillian Robertson. Just work that takedown defense as much as possible. And then obviously work the jujitsu as much as possible to stay out of that that funky and powerful and offensive style of Jillian Robertson when it comes to the grappling room. She really needs to work on her hands, though, as I feel that if she works on her hands more, she can kind of start to trick her opponents into thinking, okay, maybe she's going to want to be a striker for this round or something like that. And that's where she's able to open up the takedown opportunities for herself. But she's just fighting so often that it doesn't seem like she's truly evolving the rest of her game. Like, it's just always, I'm going to go in there with the same game plan, which is try to take you down or pull guard or whatever it is, get this into the grappling realm and try to pull off a submission. I wonder how long that's going to work for her, though. You know what I mean? Like, she's 3-2 and two in her last five fights. Okay, that's cool. But if she's just not able to evolve, like, how is she going to continue to beat other women in this division? Like, this is a 125-pound division. You're going up against Valentina Shevchenko if you find yourself at the top of this division. You really think Shevchenko is going to succumb to a style like that? Probably not. It does lead to very entertaining fights as Robertson normally, you know, goes out there and gets the win or or goes out there and goes out on her shield. And, you know, in that fight against Tyler Santos, she was just absolutely outmuscled and just couldn't pull off any type of submission in that fight. Um, her striking is pretty much just laid down to, I'm going to flash a couple of strikes out there, you know, try to feint a couple of times, change levels on you a couple of times. But at the end of the day, the thing that I'm going to put 100% into is that takedown and then eventually the offensive jiu-jitsu, which is her game. Now, on the other side, you got Miranda Maverick, who's 23 years old. Uh, I believe she's studying for her PhD or her master's or something like that. So she's a part-time uh, student, part-time uh, fighter. But when you see her every single time out, she's making improvements. And I think that's very key here as she's still very young. And even though some people might bank on the fact that, okay, she's a student, so she might not be as focused on the on the fighting game. But the fighting game allows her to pay for her studies, which is why she's so focused on the study, or the fighting aspect of it as well, as well, too. So it's pretty much based on what you perceive their perspective to be. And you can listen to fighter interviews and say, OK, you know, this is what she thinks. But like you always have to take these fighter interviews with a grain of salt for sure. So Miranda Maverick, she's coming on a four-fight winning streak right now. That's not including her Phoenix Series fights that she had with Invicta. Obviously, those are just exhibition fights. They do these one-night tournaments where these fights don't officially count unless you until you fight your final fight. So I'm not even taking those fights into consideration. But her last fight, she did K or win via Docker Stoppage uh, against Liana Jojo, where she landed a beautiful step in elbow upward elbow i believe it was landed right on the nose of liana and just busted her upper immediately just that cut just would not stop bleeding now could that fight have gone on longer yeah even liana jojo herself wanted to be like hey i can still fight it's just a cut yeah, I mean, we've seen much worse cuts and much, uh, you know, in much worse spots and the referee still allows them to fight. Unfortunately, I'm not sure if it had anything to do with the fact that, 
you know, as a woman, and I, you know, hate to be sexist or anything like that, but I feel as though they do cater a little bit more towards the women in terms of the da- amount of damage that they're taking. Regardless, beautiful, beautiful performance from Miranda Maverick on the feet. She showed great uh, and improved Muay Thai. Uh, her striking just looked on point. Her step and elbows were beautiful. Uh, and then in the fight before that, it was her Invicta fight against Pearl Gonzalez, where she came in as a very slight underdog, uh, but still went out there and uh, did did some good work. You know, what I mean, she she was able to keep up with the transitions from Pearl Gonzalez, do some good work from on top, land some good damage from on top. Uh, you know, have some solid success with the striking as well too. Um, but I think this is a girl that we're going to see an evolution from every single time out. Now, I'm not the most you know uh, keen on going out there and betting her at that minus 140 range, but I do think this is a fight where she could outpower Jillian uh, uh, Robertson. I think Robertson will obviously have the jiu-jitsu advantage here. That's without a doubt. And I do think that she would be successful in getting Miranda Maverick down. But then it comes into the parts where, like, how much does the strength play into it? And how much does the improvements of Miranda Maverick change the trajectory of this fight? Now, the parts that I see where we will see Maverick have success is obviously the striking. So if she's able to keep it there, that's where she'll have the most amount of success. But I do think she is live for a finish. I think both women are live for a finish here. That's why I'm probably going to go back to the well of betting a Jillian Robertson under here. We got plus 150, which is a solid enough line for me to take the shot, considering that both women are very live for a finish, whether it's a submission on either side or even a ground and pound from the Miranda Maverick side. Or if this fight stays on the feet long enough that Miranda Maverick is able to get her paws on her, land some good strikes, land some good kicks, land some good elbows, and eventually just put away Jillian Robinson on the feet. So I'll side with Miranda Maverick and I'll side with the under two and a half, which I think is very, very live. Uh, but I think that Maravik's, Maverick's strength is going to be a little bit too much for Robertson, uh, and she might be able to catch her in these bad positions and just start unloading on her with some ground and pound, and I think that's a very, very live spot here as well, too. So I'll go with Maverick. I'll go with uh, KO or ground and pound. Um, I don't know whether round one or round two, but just for the sake of it, let's try to keep the trend of round two women's finishes that I'm calling. Uh, so I would say round two, Ma- Miranda Maverick uh, wins this fight either by ground and pound or just striking on the feet. Uh, so once again, I'll go with Miranda Maverick via KO, ground and pound, whatever you want to call it. Gabe Gifted Green versus Phil Rowe. We got minus 135 on Gabe Green and plus 115 on the Fresh Prince, Phil Rowe. So let's start off with Phil Rowe, who's coming off a very lengthy layoff himself as well. The last time we saw him was in the Contender Series, where he dispatched of Leon Shabazian as a plus 180 underdog. Before that, uh, well, he's been on a little bit of a run now. Um, 7-2 and two is his current record. Um Comes out of that Fusion XL uh, gym down in Florida where we've seen guys like Mike Perry, uh, Jacare Souza, and even Rodolfo Vieira uh, come out of. They have a solid, small, tight-knit gym there, and I'm very impressed with what's been coming out of there as of late. Now, with Phil Rowe, he seems like a guy, you know, 6'3", 80.5-inch reach. Crazy that he's able to make welterweight at that uh, at that weight uh, or at that frame. But, you know, he's a very lean dude as well, too. He seems a little hesitant on the feet at, at, in instances um, you know he seems a little uncomfortable at times but when he does get into his zone and he's able to clip his opponents he really gets going and he's able to land some good shots find the openings in his opponent's striking defense and really able to put it on him and get them out of there 
You saw Leon Shabazzian have a lot of success on him in that first round, almost putting him away. Uh, luckily for Phil, he was able to endure that. And then in the second round, put it on Leon himself. And then in the third round, eventually put him out. And the Clint, uh, the the McKeon fight, uh, that was another guy that he was going up against that was very skinny uh, and very tall, 6'4", an inch taller than him. But that guy looked even more uncomfortable on the feet. Uh, and we saw Phil Rowe, you know, land some good shots on him and then eventually uh, sink in a guillotine choke. I'm trying to find what Phil Rowe is actually really good at. You know what I mean? Like, he's tall for the division. He's he's lanky. He has He's more than likely going to have a reach advantage on all of his opponents. But, I, you know, he I feel like he's still a little bit green. And that's kind of tough to say for a guy who's 30 years old coming into his 10th MMA fight, especially with that 10th MMA fight being in the UFC. Um, luckily for him, he's going up against the guy in Gabe Green, who's only 27, who's coming into his 13th fight, and he has such a reach and size advantage over that he could potentially make, uh, you know, find some success in this fight. However, I feel like Gabe Green is just a little bit more well-rounded at this point in time. You know, we did see him lose a decision victory to um, Daniel Rodriguez. That was his UFC debut. And that was a very short notice fight for him as well, too. So, uh, you know, good on him for being able to survive three rounds against Daniel Rodriguez, who's been putting away dudes left and right. Uh, before that, he was on a bit of a win streak off finishes as well, too. Uh, I believe he was a CXF champion over there in uh, California. And they do share a common opponent in Leon Shabazian. And he, they, both of them were able to dispatch of him uh, via finish. Um, Gabe Green, very uh, unorthodox on the ground with his uh, jiu-jitsu. Uh, very impressive, too. Like when he has... Uh, guys uh you know whether they're in full guard or, or full mount he's able to like swing his legs forward in front of them and kind of sweep them and and go for leg locks and he just is very very uh um like he has a lot of dexterity in his hips and his legs is very very impressive we didn't see him to get to pull off much of his jiu-jitsu in the daniel rodriguez fight as that was primarily a stand-up affair but i do think that we had we saw some good things in gabe uh with his striking as well for some reason, he looks a little bit more uh, comfortable on the feet than Phil Rowe. But he's going to have uh, a 5-inch height advantage to overcome here, as well as a 6.5-inch reach disadvantage. So I, it, it's interesting how this fight's going to play out. Now, Phil Rowe obviously been off for a while now. We saw Gabe Green in, uh, in the summer. So maybe you got to you know teeter towards Gabe Green a little bit more in terms of just being a little bit more... Um, uh, active and and I think that's a huge thing here, especially with Phil coming into the UFC for the first time. Gabe's already done the walk. You know what I mean? Gabe's seen the bright lights. Gabe's been in front of Dana and all that stuff. And so has Phil Rowe on the Contender Series. But this is just another game. Like you see the the UFC logo on the octagon and the UFC logo on your gloves compared to just the Dana White Contender Series and this just being the fight that gets me in to the UFC. Now you're actually fighting in the UFC. Luckily for him, like I said. He's going up against a relatively newcomer in uh, Gabe Green, who only has one fight in the UFC. I I lean Gabe in this fight. I just don't know uh, with how much confidence. Like, I don't feel comfortable playing him at that minus 135 range. The line that I do find intriguing, though, as I do think both guys can finish and have been finished in the past, uh, is the under two and a half. And I have seen a couple of my buddies on this line. The under 2.5 is currently around that minus 120 range. But I'm finding a little bit of hesitant in terms of pulling the trigger there too. 
I think uh, Gabe could land on Phil. I think if he takes this fight to the ground, he could definitely make it a tough, tough time for him and eventually pull off a submission. And even Gabe to win this fight via decision or via submission is plus 475, which I think is a solid spot as well too. This fight all in all will probably be a stay away other than the under two and a half. Um, but I do think that Gabe pulls it off. I think he'll be live to get a takedown here. Uh, I think, you know, that will be his path to victory. Try to leg kick his way into the distance and then follow up with a takedown or at least some strikes on the feet. But I think the longer it stays on the feet, the more it could, uh, um, the more it would favor Phil, as I believe he would do a better uh, job of maintaining the distance and landing the better shots from the outside. However, I'm still leading with Gabe. I think he gets the fight to the ground. I think he gets his jiu-jitsu going, and I think we see him pull off a submission victory. So I'm going to have to go with Gabe Green. I think he pulls off a first-round submission victory here over Phil Rowe. There's not much confidence from my side on this fight at all, um, but I do think that this is a fight where uh, the, the slight favorite uh, is deserving of being the favorite, and I think he's just a little bit more well-rounded at this time. So once again, I'll go with Gabe Green to win this fight via first round submission. Ricky Simone versus Brian Kelleher. We got minus 255 on Ricky and plus 215 on a boom Brian Kelleher. Let's start off with Ricky Simone who's coming off a very dominant victory uh, not too long ago as well too. We're talking about less than a month ago. He went out there and beat UFC newcomer Gaetan uh, Perello uh, and he finished him in the second round with a arm triangle choke. Now that was a fight that was very confident in Ricky Simone and even though he was a very heavy favorite, I thought the end the distance line on him was you know, it should have been my lock of the night. And that's probably going to be one of my biggest regrets all year because I truly thought the skill discrepancy there was miles and miles apart. Like the only way that we would see Pirello pull off a victory here is if he went out there and knocked out Ricky Simone, something that uh, Uriah Faber was able to do not too long ago. And I think it made a little, uh, some people a little bit um, trigger happy in taking the shot on Pirello to win inside the distance. But I thought they were completely out of their minds to take the shot here against Ricky Simone, who's the much better fighter. You know what I mean? Like, like Prello is a one and done on the feet. If he's not able to get that game going, he's more than likely going to lose his fight. And I got a little bit overzealous in terms of thinking that Ricky Simone was going to be able to get him out of there in that first round. It took him an extra four minutes, but he was still able to get him out of there. Now, this was a one-sided beatdown. I mean, we're talking about seven minutes of accrued control time for Ricky Simone in a nine-minute fight. And he still outstruck him by a couple of strikes uh, there as well too, right? So very, very good performance for Ricky Simone to you know keep the train going. He's coming off a win over uh, Ray Borg before that as well too. But he did have two straight losses before that. Obviously the knockout to Uriah Faber. Then he gets outpointed by Rob Font. And then he goes on this two-fight winning streak now. And going up against Brian Kelleher now, who he's been scheduled to fight a couple of times. Thankfully, they're able to get back in the cage. And um, yeah, I, I still like Ricky Simone here now the issue with brian kelleher always is he does have power in his hands and we've seen ricky Simone knocked out a couple fights ago um but in all under all other indications i feel as though this fight could pay, play out similarly to ricky Simone or sorry uh, brian kelleher versus cody stamen like if you want to put a template of a fighter for Ricky Simone, Cody Stamen is pretty much that guy. If anything, I give Cody Stamen a slight advantage on the feet. I think he's the much more well-rounded guy. But Ricky Simone does show good things on the feet. His head movement is much improved. He moves a lot better. He throws a lot of power in his punches. But the issue here is, I think, just like Cody Stamen did, 
Uh, Ricky Simone is going to struggle to get this fight to the ground, and that leaves Brian Kelleher a little bit more alive than he should be. Now, if he was able to go out there and complete takedowns on a on you know on a consistent basis, then I'd be a lot more confident in picking Brian. Uh, sorry. Uh, Ricky Simone here but I believe this fight's going to take place on the feet for the most part and uh, that leaves Ricky Simone a little bit more too vulnerable to getting knocked out I do think that we see Ricky Simone survive it I do think we see him mix it up enough to keep um to keep uh Brian Kelleher at bay uh but you're talking about Kelleher who has a 72 or 72 percent takedown defense uh Cody Stamen went two for four on takedowns for uh against him uh, most of those coming later in the fight as well too um so ricky simone is really gonna have to survive that first round i think if he's able to get past that first round his chances of winning are even higher but even at minus 255 i'm a little bit skeptical there like you're talking about uh um you're talking about a 72 percent implied odds on uh, Ricky Simone winning this fight but again I would I would increase those implied odds if he was successfully able to get the fight down and do some good work from on top but I'm a little bit skeptical in terms of him actually being able to do that but I do think he will be the one with the higher output I think he'll be able to get in and out mix up the game well enough like you know throw in feints of takedowns or even land a couple of takedowns to keep Brian Kelleher uh, kind of thinking and second guessing himself um which is where Ricky Simone should be able to get his hands going a little bit more. I'm expecting Ricky to possibly push him up against the cage a little bit more. You know, maybe not be successful in getting the fight to the ground, but at least uh, accruing that control time, being the stronger guy. I do believe he'll be the stronger guy in here. And I do think that Brian Kelleher, uh, you know, struggles against these types of guys. Uh, like, in terms of a template of a guy similar to Ricky Simone that Brian Keller has beaten, Hunter Azure, you know, that happened during the COVID era as well, too, where uh, Kelleher was able to put him out in that second round after Hunter Azure had a decent first round. But we did see him start to gas a little bit. We did see him, uh, I'm talking about Hunter Azure, we did see his gasting start to uh, get compromised. But I don't think that's going to be an issue here for Ricky Simone, who, in my opinion, is a ball of energy, has solid uh, cardio of his own. So I do think he'll be able to keep up a pace for 15 minutes. It's all about staying away from that boom bomb. You know what I mean? Uh, but it, it's not often that it works out where you bank on a guy to land a knockout blow. Um, so it's considered a narrow path to victory in my eyes. Uh, but Brian Keller is one of the better guys that stays on it. You know what I mean? He doesn't get discouraged by dropping the first round or the second round or anything like that. He's going to continue to bring it. His takedown defense more than likely holds up throughout his career. And not to mention the threat of his guillotine as well that normally scares guys off of trying to go for takedowns against him as well too but Ricky Simone um you know a savvy vet at this point in time I think he's been around the game long enough to to be able to handle a guy like uh Brian Keller he's as this is going to be his 21st fight um yeah I'm a fan of Ricky Simone I wouldn't mind parlaying him in the spot to be honest in terms of playing him straight I wouldn't also uh be surprised that during fight week we see that Brian Keller her money come in and we get a better price tag on uh Ricky Simone so you know, I am recording this on uh, Saturday before the fight, so a full week before the fight, and he's currently at minus 255, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's down in the, you know, lower minus 200s or even higher, like minus 190-ish range uh, come fight week or even come fight time. So, uh, yeah, possibly way down on Simone, and especially the last time they were supposed to fight too, I did think uh, the... The line was much closer. He goes out there and he blows out uh, a scrub out of the water. I don't think that... Uh, 
that should indicate that he should be a bigger favorite against Brian Kelleher here because he was supposed to go out there and do that to Perello. I mean, Brian Kelleher brings a much different game and a much grittier game than Perello was going to bring to it, not to mention a much better takedown defense game as well too, right? So uh, I'll go with Ricky Simone. I'll go with him to win this fight via decision. I don't like the odds at minus 250. I'm hoping that we get uh, slightly better odds there, but I do think all around he should be able to uh, put out a, a, a complete MMA game and shut down the game of Brian Keller. Stay away from that boom bomb of his and uh, come away with the decision victory. So once again, I'll go with Ricky Simone to win this fight via decision. Paul Yana Vienna versus Mallory Martin. We got minus 155 on Mallory and plus 135 on the Brazilian Poliana Vienna. Let's start off with Poliana, who's coming off a victory, a submission victory over Emily Whitmire. That only lasted roughly about a minute or so. We saw her get the fight to the ground pretty easily and then was able to pull off a submission victory. Um, Beautiful armbar, I believe it was by her as well, too. That actually snapped a three-fight losing streak of hers, uh, which pretty much was sandwiched uh, between her UFC debut where she pulled off a submission victory over Maya Stevenson, where she came in as a minus 440 favorite. So that was pretty much a foregone conclusion at that point in time. Then she goes out there and fights a girl in J.J. Aldrich. That's a fight that I still like to claim as one of my best dog spots where I hit J.J. Aldrich around that plus 140 mark. Uh, but I thought that was going to be a very tough stylistic matchup for Poliana in terms of the striking realm. And if J.J. was able to hold her own in the jiu-jitsu realm, which she showed a little bit of... Um, you know, she showed solid uh, work in the past there. Uh, not to mention that she's a, you know, very close training partner of Rose Nami Yunus and coming out of that Denver team uh, I thought she had a lot to bring to the table obviously she was the much crisper striker as well which really gave Poliana Vienna issues as Poli you know she seems a little bit more uh, chaotic in her striking uh, sequences like she throws decent kicks she shows decent hands but Matt her chin is just just pointing up to the heavens every time she throws a combination I thought JJ Aldrich did a really good job in terms of exposing that we saw her pull away with the decision victory there. And then in her next fight, she had a lot of trouble with Hannah Cyphers. But that was a close fight. That was a very, very close fight. If you actually look up MMA decisions, it's pretty much split down the middle. Um, you know, first round uh, probably goes to Hannah Cyphers. I believe it was the second round, uh, you know, could have gone to Poliana Vienna. Uh, she was on her back for the majority of it, but she was the one uh, landing the strikes and landing the damage. And all three judges, if I'm not mistaken, actually gave that round to her. And then in the third round, uh, one judge actually gave it to Poliana. The other two gave it to Hannah Cyphers, but that was... Um, around that was primarily taking place on the feet for the most part of it and we saw Poliana pretty much just throw caution to the wind and they were exchanging in a lot of these situations very very close round could have gone either way um, but it really showed that Poliana was just not successful in getting the fight to the ground uh, often enough to really get her jiu-jitsu game going even when Cyphers was uh, in her full guard for the majority of that second round. Cyphers was just playing it safe as much as possible, pretty much just turtling up into a little ball to you know, refrain from any of her limbs getting snatched up or any choking applied by Poliana. So good on Cyphers to you know stay safe in that round, uh, but she definitely lost that round too. Uh, and then in the next fight, we see Veronica Macedo uh, submit Poliana Vienna. That was a very uh, surprising one as we, you know, Macedo was the favorite going into that fight, but no expected it 
or the victory to come via submission the way that I did. Very slick and uh, a lot of uh, dexterity in the in the hips and the legs of Veronica Macedo, which allowed her to pull off that nasty uh, armbar submission. Beautiful victory for her there. And then we saw Poliana Vienna get right back on track with that victory over Emily Whitmar. She showed a lot of emotion after that fight too, and deservedly so, considering that she was probably fighting for her job at that point in time. Now... The, you know the, the the notes are out on Vienna you know I mean she is a jiu-jitsu artist she has like I think they keep saying 20 or 21 state championships uh she's won a bunch of uh titles uh in the jiu-jitsu room and she is quite active uh and reckless in her approach in her fights uh so I'm not surprised that three out of her last five fights have finished inside the distance um you know, I do think that Martin will have the striking advantage here and will hop onto her side. Uh, she's uh, four and one in her last five with her only loss coming to Verna Janduroba. That one's not a bad loss at all. Verna is a top five uh, girl in that division. Super high level jujitsu. Did a really good job of getting that fight to the ground. And that's where my concern for Mallory Martin lays in terms of she didn't really show the greatest takedown defense in that fight. You know, what I mean, she pretty much gave it up. And I'm not trying to discredit Verna at all there. You know, she timed her entries quite well and she was able to get the fight down uh, more often than not. Um, and then we obviously see her pull off the submission victory in that second round. Um I don't know if Vienna will be as successful in terms of getting uh, Mallory Martin to the ground. She has, a, I believe, a 33% success rate in her takedown accuracy. And, um, you know, Mallory Martin comes from that AKA gym. I think she's now spending time at Team Elevation. Her boyfriend is a high-level wrestler himself, Mr. Duran Wynn. Uh, so I'm sure she knows a thing or two about wrestling. And most of her fights, her victories come via wrestling. You know what I mean? She goes out there. Takes, takes these women down and, uh, you know, shows some good passing. I believe she's a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. Uh, she passes very well. She gets dominant positions. And either she sinks in a choke or she uh, gets a TKO or she uh, controls her opponents long enough to eventually get uh, a decision victory. But she is quite uh, offensive in those positions. So I think this fight is pretty much predicated on um, how this, uh, how she approaches this fight, and by she I mean Mallory Martin. You know, I mean she, more often than not, you see her going to her wrestling, and that's how she pulls off her victories. And you know, do you really want to go to the wrestling when you're dealing with such a high level jujitsu player like a Poliana Vienna? Like I try to compare these situations to uh, Ben Askren versus Damian Maya and uh, Bartos Fabinski versus Andre Muniz, where you have a fighter that has an advantage, which is the wrestling, but it plays right into the advantage of their opponents, which is the jiu-jitsu. Now, I'm not saying that Poliana Vienna is Damian Maya with her jiu-jitsu and Mallory Martin is Ben Askren with her, with her wrestling, so it comes down to Mallory in terms of how she wants to dictate this fight. If this fight remains on the feet, I think she has the better hands and add into this situation that Poliana Vienna likes to hold her chin up uh, so high. It could lead to uh, bad things for Vienna if this fight remains on the feet. Um, we did see in the Hannah Cyphers fight that Mallory Martin uh, has a little bit of work to do with the striking as well. We saw Hannah Cyphers very close to finishing her in that first round, pretty much just unloaded her gas tank in that first round, was not able to get the finish. Uh, and luckily for Mallory, she was able to withstand that and uh, you know, get the takedown in the second round pretty much immediately and then work to eventually get that submission. Uh, I believe it was a rear naked choke there. So good win for her there. Um, 
again, this fight is pretty much predicated on how she wants to approach this fight. However, I do think that we, the reckless fighting style of Pollyanna Vienna will absolutely make the under in this fight very, very live. It's roughly around that plus 190 mark, which is a, a 34% indication, I believe. And if you take both of these women's records and lump them together, the average, or, or sorry, the, the percentage of time this fight or their fights uh, and inside the distance is about 68%. So in terms of mathematics, I like my chances there. In terms of how they match up as well too, I think both girls are live for a finish. I'm actually siding with the Poliana Vienna side. I think that if Martin decides to go out there and try to tries to wrestle, she's you know just pretty much just jumping into the 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 jaws of the shark. You know what I mean? She's pretty much just putting herself into into um, into into threat uh, into a very threatening situation. And I think even if it comes down to it, we could see Poliana Vienna uh, maybe land one of her uh, hip toss takedowns that we've seen her complete in the past. Um, but I think it's, one, it's predicated on how Mallory Martin approaches this fight, but also with the recklessness of Poliana. So I like the plus 190 that we're getting on the under two and a half here, as I do think both women are very live for a finish, whether it's Mallory Martin getting a submission of her own or even just uh, kind of controlling Poliana on the ground or even landing a big enough shot on the feet, given the reckless style of Poliana. And then for Poliana, obviously, I think that she's very live for a submission, whether it's her pulling guard, um, you know, get, landing a hip toss, um, testing the... In my opinion, sketchy takedown defense of Mallory Martin. Uh, that's uh, obviously a, a scenario as well. Apoliana is going to have a one-inch height advantage as well as a four-inch reach advantage. So I'm interested to see how this fight plays out. But I think uh, a finish is very live from both sides. So I'm going to actually be going with the dog here. I think Poliana will be the one that actually pulls off a submission here. I think she finds herself in the grappling realm and then uh, goes to work with her black belt. Uh, I do think she will get the submission. I'm not sure exactly which one. Uh, and now my 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 thinking regarding this fight is, okay, I'm picking Poliana. We're getting about plus 135. But I think the way that she wins is via submission, which means it's going to happen in the distance, and I expect it to happen under two and a half rounds. Uh, and for that uh, price, we're getting a plus 190. So you're opening up the possibility of Mallory Martin possibly getting a finish, as well as uh, covering that Poliana submission, which is what I think she's going to end up getting. So the spot that I'm looking at here is the under one and or under two and a half, which is around that plus one ninety mark. And then I'm actually siding with the dog here as well and Poliana Vienna to pull off this fight uh, and pull off this victory via submission. Bala Mohammed versus Diego Lima. We got minus three twenty five on Bala Mohammed and plus two fifty for Diego Lima. Let's start off with Diego Lima, who's coming back after um, I believe a couple injuries. Not to mention the fact that he hasn't fought since UFC 243, which was the same night that Israel Adesanya claimed the middleweight title after he defeated Robert Whitaker. So that was October 2019. It's been a long time. I'm trying to do the quick math in my head. We got 12 months, um, 16 months, roughly a 16-month layoff, so close to a year and a half off. Uh, not... Uh, ideal, especially when you're coming back against a guy like Bala Mohammed, who brings an all-around MMA game. But we're talking about Diego Lima here, who's on a three-fight winning streak. Um, he started that winning streak by cashing as a huge underdog at plus 325. I believe I was live at that fight at uh, UFC 231. I might be off on that, but it was in Toronto. 
knocked out Chadler Pries. Uh, I believe that was a first round KO for him. And that sparked a three fight winning streak where he went on to defeat um, Court McGee via decision. And he uh, defeated Luke Jamal uh, via decision as well, too. That was a split decision. I'm not sure exactly why. That was a you know, one-way traffic, in my opinion, you know, very, very much favored for Diego Lima. Now, Diego Lima is a guy that I've wanted to pretty much fade in every single one of his fights. I'm not sure what my qualm is with him, but I feel like, or I felt like he used to have a very beatable style. You know, I faded him against Jesse Taylor, and that paid off for me. I got that minus 170 on Taylor there. Luckily, he dispatched him in that second round uh, via submission. I don't know why, but I skipped the uh, Yushin Okami fight, but that seemed like a tailor-made fight for Yushin Okami to go out there and uh, outgrind a guy like Diego Lima, and uh, that's exactly what he did. Chad Laprise, obviously, I was not going to pay that minus 400, and luckily I didn't. He got knocked out there. I did pay uh, that minus 150 on Court McGee, as I thought he had a similar style to a Yushin Okami and a Jesse Taylor. Unfortunately, uh, a 2019 uh, Court McGee is not able to get the job done there. And then Luke Jamal, I think I actually bet Diego Lima in the Luke Jamal fight because I was quite impressed with what we saw from Diego Lima in his fight before that. Now, um, with with Diego Lima, you're talking about a solid striker. Everybody knows his brother Douglas Lima, Bellator champ, um, you know, uh, has been making a name for himself on the, over there. And Diego Lima, been on the Ultimate Fighter, um, shows a solid skill set. You know what I mean? Great Muay Thai fighter. Black belt in jiu-jitsu, ever-improving takedown game and jiu-jitsu game as well. Uh, but he makes a lot of his solid movements on the feet. And the one thing that I like that he's been adding to his arsenal is that calf kick. Absolutely towards the lead calf of Lu Jumao. And that's a skill that I believe that a lot of fighters should uh, start to implement. I think that's a, that's a solid um, game plan to to revolve your, your, your fight around, your strategy around. Especially when you're fighting a guy that isn't primarily a, a striker like uh, Bilal Muhammad. Bilal, more like a all-around MMA guy, right? Doesn't really have a background in one thing, but is just a good, great jack of, jack of all trades. Uh, but if Diego Lima was fighting a guy like, you know, Rafael Fiziev or or a um, Piotr Jan or something like that, obviously they're completely different weight classes. But what I'm trying to say is guys that are kickboxers, Muay Thai artists or or strikers, uh, they are usually a little bit better in terms of checking those types of kicks. Whereas I feel like it could be very effective against a guy like Bilal Muhammad. Um, he's long. He's six foot two. He's going to have about a three inch height advantage. He's going to have a three inch reach advantage as well too. So maybe he could use that length in terms of how much distance he can cover with his kicks and really start to batter the lead leg of Bilal Muhammad. Now Bilal on the other side, again, I, I've pretty much banged on it this entire breakdown is that he's a very uh solid all-around fighter he's on a three-fight winning streak himself as well too where he's uh taking curtis millinder to a decision uh sub takashi sato at ufc 242 and then most recently we saw him win via decision against lyman good back in december and that was a very impressive fight because that was a fight that i i did pick lyman good to win i didn't bet it as i did believe it was a very close fight i don't think i bet it i'd have to go back and check um but I thought that Lyman Good striking would be a little bit too much for Bilal. But Bilal did a really good job in terms of making it a brawl, um, you know, getting takedowns, maybe not holding Lyman Good down, but at least changing the fight up enough so that it caused Lyman Good issues. I think the only round that Lyman Good won on the judges' scorecard was the third one, and the first two went to Bilal. But it was a tough one, man. He got busted up. Um, he ate some damage in that fight. Uh, Lyman Good just couldn't track down uh, Bilal Muhammad, who was just moving constantly, uh, changing levels, landing good combinations, and getting out of the way. 
Uh, but I feel like Lamy Good is a little bit more too too focused on the the head hunting aspect of his striking game. Like he's a great striker, you know. Tiger Shulman trained, um, has a solid record of his own, has great experience as well too. But he had a lot of issues in terms of trying to track down Bilal, and Bilal was just on his bike the entire time, landing his good combinations, landing some leg kicks, and then getting out of the way. That's Bilal, right? We'll never know what his game plan truly will be. Uh, given the fact that he's not, you know, diverse exactly in one specific thing, he's great in terms of blending the entire uh, martial arts world together. However, this line seems a little bit too wise for me, and I feel like it has to do with um, the, uh, you know, the layoff that Diego Lima's coming off of. Because if it was fresh off of his win over Luke Jamal, is he really this big of a dog? Uh, Diego Lima, like, would he really be plus 250? I'm expecting this line to actually move uh, more so as this fight week goes on. If I'm not mistaken, the line is actually already moving. Yeah, minus 325 is currently what we're getting still. But I'm expecting a lot of people just automatically parlay Bilal, thinking that he's going to be a, a lock, per se. And I'm I'm not really on the tra- train there. Like, I will pick him to win this fight. I do think he can mix it up well enough and add into the caveat that Diego Lima is coming off a 16th month, 16 month layoff. Uh, he has a lot to deal with here. You know, Diego Lima has pretty much uh, been spending his time at ATT Georgia, I believe it's called, uh, the ATT affiliate over there in uh, the Atlanta area. Spending time with his brother, um, you know, Cody Durden's another guy that he's been spending a lot of time with as well, too. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw Diego Lima, you know, hop over to the main ATT gym to get in a couple rounds and get some days in there. Uh, and then Bilal Muhammad, we obviously know him uh, spending time up there in Milwaukee, if I'm not mistaken. But he's been uh, spending time with his uh, his primary striking coach, Joe Valley, I believe his name is. And I think that's out of Chicago. So I'm not sure how much time he's actually spending over at Rufus Sport either, because, you know, just glancing through his IG, you can see he's pretty much been training uh, primarily at that Joe Valley gym. So I'm not sure who really gets the advantage in terms of who's coming from the better training camp at this point in time. I believe Bilal did spend a little bit of time down in Florida as well too. I think that was in preparation for Lyman Good. I might not be, I, I might be off on that. Um, but man, th- this is a closer fight than the odds suggest. So I'll pick Bilal Muhammad to win, but do not be uh, you know, thrown off if you see me actually make a Diego Lima bet this week, depending on what the odds get. Like, if we get plus 400 or something, plus 350 um, for Diego Lima, I, I might be forced to make a bet here. Like, uh, let me let me just pull up my calculator in one second in terms of uh, the implied odds here. I want to give you guys a solid uh, read here. So, with, with Bilal Muhammad currently being... Where's he at? Uh, Bilal Muhammad currently being a minus 325 favorite. That puts him at a 76% implied. What would make him a... Or let's see what 20% is. 20% would be plus 400 for um, for Diego Lima. I think he has a better chance of that. I'd say 25 to 30%. So even if we put him at 30%, um, that would make him plus 233, which makes him even bettable at this point in time. Um Man, Bilal just mixes the game together so well. I think the more technical striker here is Diego Lima. And then mixing that black belt, how much damage is Bilal really going to get off on the ground? Like, man, very, very tough fight to call. I'll say Bilal to win. But again, do not be 
thrown off if you see me bet Diego Oliva here. I do think he has a path to victory with his striking, with his range, uh, and even if he gets taken to the ground, I'm hoping his improving jiu-jitsu game will really help him uh, nullify the amount of damage coming from Bilal. But Bilal could absolutely control him as we're here as well too. So I'll go at Bilal via decision. Uh, but again, do not be surprised if you see me make a bet on Diego Lima here. Anthony Hernandez versus Rodolfo Vieira. We got a minus 400 on Rodolfo and we got plus 325 on Fluffy Hernandez. Let's start off on the Fluffy side who's coming off a loss to Kevin Holland roughly within 30 or so seconds, 30 or 40 seconds. We see them clinch up and Kevin Holland land a beautiful knee to the solar plexus which just drops uh, Anthony Hernandez and he follows up with some ground and pound and gets the finish that way um, and it looks kind of similar to his prior loss to that which was to Marcos uh, Perez where he got a drop to the body uh, and then we see a little bit of a scuffle grappling exchanges and then um, Marcus Perez locks up an anaconda choke gets a beautiful finish there so uh, we're seeing Hernandez one and two in the UFC now. Uh, obviously, his fight against Jordan Wright on the contender series got changed to a no contest. He went in there and starts him relatively quickly. But uh, yeah, he, um, I believe he popped for marijuana, if I'm not mistaken. It might have been something else as well. But either way, he he gets a long layoff there, comes back and fights Marcus Perez, uh, loses that fight, comes back and fights Jun Young Park and has a fantastic fight. That was a great fight back and forth. But we did eventually see Hernandez lock up a finish at the end, uh, in the second round and then obviously comes back against Kevin Holland and falls short there. So the narrative here on Anthony Hernandez is just that he's not a good fighter. And I absolutely disagree with that. The guy is a solid fighter. If you guys go back and watch his fight against Brendan Allen, which was a couple of years ago at this point in time, but um, he went into that fight as a plus 145 dog and pulled out a five-round decision victory over Brendan Allen, I believe, for the title at the time as well, too. This was for LFA. The guy reminds me of Cain Velasquez in the aspect of, yeah, they kind of look similar, but also their fighting style. You know, Anthony Hernandez is one of those guys that moves forward pretty much at all times. He wants to break his opponent. He wants to pressure his opponent. He wants to put a pace on his opponent uh, with the ultimate goal of breaking them and eventually finishing them. That's what he did against Jun Young Park. Uh, That's, you know, kind of what he did against Brendan Allen. But that fight does go a full five rounds, if I believe, if I am correct at that. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, when his game plan does work to a T, he can get guys out of there pretty quickly, like he did against Jordan Wright. Now here against Rodolfo Vieira, he's uh, up against a you know a guy who is a super high level jujitsu practitioner, uh, obviously very strong and very physically imposing for this division, which is why a lot of people are on that train, but obviously not to mention the hardships that Anthony Hernandez has had to endure over his last couple fights. I don't think the line should be this wide. Like, I I do kind of side with Rodolfo Vieira here in terms of him being successful and getting this fight to the ground and pulling off a submission of some sort, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see Anthony Hernandez actually take it to him on the feet, keep this fight on the uh, on the in the striking realm, and then eventually put him away uh, with some strikes. We saw Vieira, you know, pretty get get touched up pretty bad by um, uh, Saperbeg Safarov, where we see Safarov land a good shot. It even busts open the eye of uh, Vieira. So I wonder how. Um, prone to you know uh, facial injuries uh, Vieira is here but uh, I don't think he should be this wide of a favorite like when you have a guy that has 
such a narrow path to victory like Vieira, which is get that first round sub within the first, you know, first round sub or under one and a half. Otherwise, he's going to start to gas out. You know, I have a lot of question marks. Anthony Hernandez is has shown durability in the past, but also has obviously had those issues against Marcos Perez and Kevin Holland where he's not able to take those shots at all. So th- those are those are the concerns here, obviously, right? But I don't feel like you should be just foregone conclusioning, just writing off Anthony Hernandez here. I think it would be very troublesome if you went out there and parlayed that minus 400, as I don't believe it adds enough value in terms of how heavily I think he's fav- he should be favored here. Um, the spot that I like the most is the under one and a half. It's currently around minus 150, which is a little bit of chalk, but I do think that it's very much warranted here, given that both guys are finishers or can be finished. Obviously, we haven't seen Vieira lose in uh, his professional MMA career, but I do think that he's shown some discrepancies uh, that Anthony Hernandez could potentially take advantage of, most notably the striking instances. So I like the under one and a half. I don't see this fight going over seven and a half minutes. Minus 150 is a solid line, I believe. Um, I think we'll see... I think we'll see it truly come to fruition uh, that Vieira does eventually get the takedown and pull off a submission. But uh, I'm just not willing to parlay him at that minus 400 range as I do th- think that's a little bit steep. Like, he goes in there as a minus 225 favorite against Oscar Pijota, finishes him in the second round. Goes in there as a minus 600 favorite against Safarbeg Safarov, finishes him in the first round, but did have some adversity that he had to overcome there. Whereas Anthony Hernandez on the other side, we're just talking about a guy that was at even money against Kevin Holland, who is on a little bit of a tear right now. Especially the way that Kevin Holland uh, finished Jack Ray Souza last time around. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of post or a, you know yeah hindsight in terms of like uh, you know why Anthony Hernandez was that close of a favorite or sorry at those odds against Kevin Holland the guy is a good fighter like he he's just getting a bad rap right now because of the little bit of a shake streak that he's currently on um yeah this is a tough fight for Vieira I think it's the toughest one out of his three that he's had in the UFC uh so again don't I I would rather uh take the the fight doesn't go to decision rather than betting Vieira Let's see what the fight doesn't go to decision actually is. Because I think that would be... I'd be surprised if it's actually better. <clears throat> I'd be surprised if it's better than... Um, taking Vieira. Let's see. Fight doesn't go to decision. It's currently sitting at... Minus 515. So yeah, that makes absolute sense. I would rather take the minus 515 on the fight doesn't go to decision than take minus 400 on Rodolfo Vieira. I don't see this fight going to the judges' scorecards, and I think whoever wins will win via finish. Um, So I'm siding with the Vieira side reluctantly as well, too, as I do think that Anthony Hernandez is a live dog. But the spot that I'm going to be targeting uh, to potentially bet here is going to be the under one and a half. So once again, I'll go with Vieira via first round sub, um, but not parlaying this guy at all. I would rather take the fight doesn't go to decision or at least parlay the uh, under one and a half around that minus 150 mark. So once again, Rodolfo Vieira to win this fight via first round submission. Bobby King Green versus Jim Miller. We got minus 260, which is usually the norm now for Bobby Green. Uh, and then plus 220 for Jim Miller. 
So let's just look at the last couple fights of Bobby Green, where he comes in as a minus 280 favorite against Thiago Moises and a minus 340 favorite against uh, Alan Patrick. He did come in as a slight dog against Lando Veneta, but he was another hefty favorite over Clay Guia as a minus 270 favorite there as well. So I kind of lumped that fight into uh, this Jim Miller fight where he's just going out there and fighting another UFC veteran. Now, if you remember the last fight against Thiago Moises, very, very close fight. Some people might call robbery, but you got to uh, read into the fact that Bobby Green more often than not always has very close fights. And that's what you're always signing up for is a sweat whenever you're betting him uh, worse than that minus 250 range. Now, if he was better than minus 200 here, he pro I'd probably consider him as a bet. You know, I mean, I think he has a solid shot of going out there and beating a guy like Jim Miller as he has the better crisper hands. And I think he has good enough uh, submission defense to stay out of uh, any type of submission that's being thrown his way. I think he's coming up close to 12 years now that the last time we've actually seen him submitted, which is a good thing, especially against a high-level jiu-jitsu guy like Jim Miller in this spot. Now that Thiago Moises fight, again, super close. Uh, first round could have gone to, uh, I believe it was towards Bobby Green. Uh, or sorry, the, the first round was very close, could have gone either way. Second round was Bobby Green. And that third round, that one was an interesting one because we saw him willingly engage in the clinch, which is probably the most dangerous thing for him to do against a high-level black belt like Tiago Moises. And then even worse, we see him go out there and try to pull off a Kimura sweep of some sort in that clinch position up against the cage. And unfortunately for him, he's the one that ends up on his back. And we see Tiago Moises ride some good top position. Bobby Green did get back to his feet relatively quickly, but we did see Tiago Moises, uh, you know, accrue enough control time in that round, I believe, for him to at least snatch uh, that victory. Again, close fight, could have been scored either way, so I'm not mad at either scorecard here. But again, if you're paying minus 260 on uh, Bobby Green or even minus 280 like he was in that Moises fight, you're in for a bit of a sweat and that's why i don't i just don't want to bet bobby green fights anymore like yeah he should go out there yeah he should piece up jim miller but there's always that instance that he could just make it a closer fight than it should be I, i'm just not comfortable at playing him anything worse than minus 200 you know again skill for skill he should absolutely blow out a 37 year old jim miller at this point in time but he just doesn't you know what I mean? Like, he, he just has these close fights. Like, his Alan Patrick fight was a great fight for him. You know I mean, I thought he showed uh, good awareness there, a good takedown defense, and then just had success on the feet. And he could do the same thing here in terms of having good success on the feet against Jim and then nullifying the takedowns. Uh, last time around for uh, Jim Miller, we saw him against Vince Pichel in a very close fight as well, too. But we did see Pichel uh, slowly start to inch away. And that third round was very interesting where we saw pretty much uh, them exchanging grappling uh, sequences. Vince Pichel started off by taking him down. Then we saw Jim Miller reverse position. Vince Pichel, uh, re uh, re or um, gets his position once again. It's kind of stumbling on my words right there. But um, Pichel does a good job of getting his position back and then landing some good damage on Jim Miller from on top. So... Um, we, we know Miller's game. If he's able to be successful, he'll go out there and get you out of there quickly. His last three wins alone, all of them in the first round, Jason Gonzalez, Clay Guida, Ro uh, Roosevelt Roberts, like he gets into these situations where he's able to pull off his submissions uh, and, and, and do it very uh, methodically as well too. Then the, uh, before the Roosevelt Roberts fight, he loses against uh, Scott Holtzman. 
where Scott Holzman is just able to keep the fight on the feet, do some good damage from on top, and pretty much just wear on um, uh, Jim Miller in that fight. Now, I'm expecting Bobby Green to go out there and absolutely piece up Jim Miller on the feet. Um, it's just the instances where we see them tie up, where Jim Miller could potentially have some success, whether it's pulling guard, landing a takedown, or uh, one of the, the issues that I brought up in the last Bobby Green takedown or last Bobby Green breakdown was when he is in these clinch positions and he's trying to get out of the way, he does a weird thing of just giving up his back. Uh, you know, more often than not, he's able to break the grip of his opponent and get out of it. But when you're, you know, giving up your back to a high-level jiu-jitsu guys like a Tiago Moises or even a Jim Miller, it's just not the greatest look. You know what I mean? So uh, I still do lean with Bobby, man. Like, he just fights too close to his, uh, his opponent's level. And again, he's just a very talented guy. He's 34 years old. If he's ever going to get his game going, it's got to be now, especially if he wanna, wants to touch any type of UFC gold. And not to mention the fact that he dropped his last fight. He's going to have to go out there, have a very impressive performance, and really start calling his shots, as I believe that's the way for him to get closer to a title shot. I'm not sure if that's what his game plan is or in terms of the rest of his career. But I think that this is a very winnable fight for him. And I think he could potentially get Jim Miller, Jim Miller out of there late. However, we did see some good things from Jim later in his fight against Vince Michelle, where, again, he was able to reverse positions and he seemed like he was completely in there. Whereas Bobby Green, he seems a little bit more lackadaisical in his approach, which is why he wasn't able to finish a guy like Alan Patrick, who shows bad uh, cardio later in fights. And uh, I think Jim Miller will be able to uh, sustain his durability enough to potentially go to a decision here so you know the the spot that would probably be most intriguing is bobby green via decision and uh, i do want to actually look up what that is uh green by decision is minus 120 so i'd need some plus money there to to be intrigued at all so it's not intriguing to me at that line but i think that is the most likely outcome in this fight we'll see bobby green stuff some takedowns keep the fight on the feet and just pretty much piece up jim miller for the majority of the 15 minutes en route to a, a decision victory. Julian Marquez versus Mackie Patolo. We got minus 165 on Julian Marquez and plus 145 on Coconut Bombs, Mackie Patolo. Let's start off with Julian Marquez, who opened as a minus 185 favorite, and for some reason right off the bat seemed to be a foregone conclusion in terms of a solid parlay place, or as some people like to call it, a lock of the night play, and I do not agree with that. Um, so let's, again, let's start off with uh, Julian Marquez. Like I said, he's coming off roughly a three-year layoff now where he's just been dealing with injuries and just not able to get back into the cage and remain active. The last time we saw him was the night that Israel Adesanya went out there and fought Brad Tavares. If most people remember that, that was about two fights before he actually ended up fighting for the interim strap against Calvin Gaston. So yeah, Julian Marquez has been out for a while. His last time uh, he fought, he lost a split decision to Alessio Di Carico uh, in a very cl close fight, back and forth fight. But we did see more of the movement from Di Carico rather than just a forward pressure and pretty much just trudging forward style of a Julian Marquez. Uh, two fights before that, he went out there and uh, knocked out Phil Hawes very emphatically. And that was on the contender series. And that's what got him signed to the UFC we saw him endure the wrestling pace of Phil Hawes in that first round. And then in that second round, he laid a beautiful head kick, a uh, highlight reel knockout of Phil Hawes there that eventually gave him that UFC contract. Then in the Darren Stewart fight, we saw him rock him, hurt him, and then finish him via submission. Um, 
but didn't really show us much given the fact that he was a minus 340 favorite in that fight. Uh, going into the D. Carrico fight, he was a minus 135 favorite, but again, very, very close fight. Could have gone either way, uh, but I felt like D. Carrico was the one kind of moving better and uh, getting off the better shots for sure. Now, in this fight against Maki Patolo, I feel like uh, Marquez is going to be at a slight technical disadvantage as I do believe that Patolo has a better striking and I do think he has some solid movement that could potentially cause Julian Marquez some issues here. Mar uh, Patolo will be dealing with a 4-inch uh, height disadvantage as well as a 3-inch reach advantage. So I'm interested to see how that plays out in terms of when these guys are in the striking exchanges. I highly doubt that this fight is going to take place in the grappling or the jiu-jitsu realms unless Julian Marquez feels like he's falling behind a little bit and wants to use his, his size and start imposing on Mackie Patolo. If most people remember, Julian Marquez was actually supposed to fight Safarbeg Safarov back in November. Safarov botches his weight cut and Julian Marquez is forced to sit on the shelf a little bit longer. Now, I don't really know how much that's going to affect him in terms of being off for three years, but it can't really be a good thing. You know, I mean, we have Macy Barber fighting uh, later on in this card, who's been off for close to a year, but she's fitting a very high-level woman in Alexa Grasso, who should be able to cause her some issues. Now, here with the Julian Marquez and Mackie Patolo side, I feel like the technical aspects of Mackie Patolo's game will cause Julian Marquez some issues, especially considering that Marquez's style is just predicated on moving forward and trying to land his big shots. He has some decent jiu-jitsu, and we've seen some good things out of him from the scrambling uh, side of things, but that's when the other opponent, or sorry, that's when his opponent is the one um, implementing and initiating those grappling sequences. More often than not, it seems like Marquez is just happy to go out there and throw some hands, throw some bombs, throw some head kicks as well too, and hope for the best. But I think he's going to be outgunned here against Mackie Patolo, who shows much better hands and much better skills in that in that sense. Yeah, he got outstruck by Impa Kasanganai in his last fight, but Impa shows he's a solid technical striker of his own when he's not getting kicked upside the head by uh, Joaquin Buckley. Uh, Impa Kazanganai does a really good job of maintaining his distance, landing his shots, and getting back uh, uh, out um, of range of uh, what Mackie Patolo was throwing his way. The fight before that, we saw Darren Stewart uh, plant this beautiful guillotine on Mackie, and not a lot of people were expecting that, especially Mackie, who just, you know, before he realized it, it was already too late for him to start defending it. And uh, we saw Darren Stewart just squeeze the life out of uh, that guillotine choke. So solid win for Darren Stewart there. We did see Mackie Patolo show off some good perseverance against Chris Bird or Charles Bird in there uh, three fights ago. That first round, you know, Charles Bird uh, was really struggling in terms of getting Patolo down. And then in that second round, we saw the cardio start to catch up to Charles Bird. And we saw Mackie Patolo really start to dispatch of him and put him away in that second round. He came as a plus one and 45 dog in that fight too. Uh, and I think that was a huge indication due to his last fight before that where he stepped in against Kylan Parda as a minus 400 favorite and uh, still came out on the losing end. His cardio really st seemed to uh, catch up to him there, and that was a fight that also was contested at 170 pounds. Since then, we haven't seen Mackie Patolo go back down there, as we've heard that it's probably one of the worst weight cuts he's ever done, and he just does not want to go down to 170 pounds again. Unfortunately for him, he's sometimes, or more often than not, will be at a height disadvantage at 185 pounds as these guys are definitely much bigger. Julian Marquez obviously being one of those guys who's going to have a four-inch height advantage on him, like I said, at the top of this breakdown. 
So I still think that there's an upside in Maki Patola's UFC career. A lot of people wanted to write him off after after the Impa Kasanganai fight. But I think he still has a lot to offer to the to the UFC and this middleweight division. And I think a fight against Julian Marquez will help him get back onto the winning track. I like him as the underdog here, but something is just in the back of my head in terms of not really pulling the trigger on Mackey, but I do think that he could go out there and get a decision victory pretty much just out striking Julian Marquez for the majority of that, uh, for the majority of that, um, for the majority of the 15 minutes. I don't think he's going to knock out Marquez who has shown a very durable chin uh, throughout his nine fight uh, pro MMA career. Uh, but Mackey, again, I said he has very solid hands, very good hand speed, decent striking defense. But I'm interested to see how he closes that distance that he's going to have to cover when he's fighting a guy like uh, Julian Marquez. I do like the leg kicks that we see out of uh, Patolo as well, too. So maybe that's going to be a big focus for him in this fight. But I still do think um, that we'll see Mackey go out there and win this fight via decision. Calvin Gastelum versus Ian Heinish. We got minus 225 on Calvin Gastelum and plus 185 on Ian the Hurricane Heinish. Let's start off on the Calvin Gastelum side of things, who's on a three-fight losing streak now, uh, most recently dropping a submission victory to Jack Hermanson, where he just showed little to no urgency when he got his leg snatched up by Jack Hermanson, pretty much just stayed there and was just waiting for something to happen. Unfortunately for him, it was his knee. Um... You know, he didn't injure it or anything, but he was forced to tap there. Very quick fight. Um, before that, uh, loses a split decision to Darren Till. I believe that took place at UFC 244, which was the BMF title between Nate Diaz and Jorge Masvidal. But that was a fight where Darren Till did a good job of staying on the outside and pretty much just picking apart Calvin Gaslam and, uh, you know, did enough to to win, but uh, didn't overextend himself in terms of possibly getting knocked out by Calvin Gastelum. If you guys remember, that was the first fight back for Darren Till uh, after he got knocked out by Jorge, uh, so I'm sure him playing it safe made absolute sense. Then before that, we had the fight of the year candidate where Calvin Gastelum went up against Israel Adesanya for the interim middleweight title. Falls up short, very, very close fight. I'm pretty sure that it came down to that fifth round as well. And Israel Adesanya was able to pull away a little bit more. And he was even very close to winning that fight via finish as well too. Now, Kelvin Gaslam, it's interesting that he's been at middleweight as long as he has before these last three uh, losses. His only loss at middleweight was to uh, Chris Weidman, who just had an absolute size advantage on him, strength advantage on him, and obvious wrestling advantage as well too. We saw Gaslam have some good success in, in that first round in terms of landing some good shots on Chris Weidman. However, Chris endured it and then eventually took took him down and just overpowered him, eventually pulling off a submission victory. I think that's pretty much been the downfall for Calvin Gaslam is the fact that he just gets overpowered by some of these guys and he truly still should be at a welterweight. I'm just not sure why he's not uh, making the changes that are needed to go down there because I truly believe that's where he is best suited. He's still only 29 years old, so he maybe has five, six, maybe seven years left in the game still. And I truly hope that uh, he decides to change up his uh, nutritional plan and go down to 170 where he's much better suited. He can go out there and beat guys like Michael Bisping who are just 
well, Michael Beswing actually maybe a month removed from getting knocked silly by George St. Pierre and, and choked out. Um, you know, Bisping wanted to make a quick uh, turnaround and comeback. Unfortunately for him, he was just too compromised. And we saw Calvin Gaslam absolutely put him out. Then the fight after that, we saw Jacare Souza. You know, very close fight against Calvin. Even even though that Jacare was uh, kind of slowing down in that late in that third round, he was still the one kind of moving forward and trying to land the bombs against Calvin. But that was a close fight. Um, but it's the guys that are closer to their primes that are going to give uh, a guy like Calvin Gaslam issues. Now, luckily for him, Ian Heinish, yeah, five eleven, two inch height advantage. He's going to half a gonna have a half inch reach advantage as well too doesn't seem like the most intimidating guy compared to the last three guys that Calvin Gaslam has gone up against so that's why I do kind of favor Calvin here I do think that he has the better hands I do think that he could put away uh Ian Heinish but Ian has been working on his game himself too so let's go on to the Ian Heinish side of things pre-COVID he went out there to uh, Tiger Muay Thai, I believe it is, and really started sharpening his, his skills. And I'd attributed the fact that, you know, it's a lot cheaper to live out there. The accommodations and everything's just so close together. He decided to spend a lot of time out there. And it really came to fruition for him when he came in and fought Gerald Mearshard and knocked him out within that first round. His hands are definitely getting better. They could use some work, but I do think that Calvin Gaslam has him slightly edged there. Now, Ian Heinrich's game seemed to be revolved around being the more active guy, using his grappling, pretty much overwhelming his opponents. But I find him, you know, he'll have that, he'll have some struggles here against a guy like Calvin Gaslam. We saw him come against uh, Cesar Fajera and uh, beat him via decision. Then he came in against uh, Carlos Jr., both of those fights as underdogs, and outworks them. Then he runs into guys like Akhmedov and Derek Brunson, who you know he's not able to get that grappling going against, who he's not able to overwhelm, and uh, unfortunately he pays for it. He loses those both of those fights as uh, via decision. Came into both of them as a, a decent uh, favorite against Derek Brunson and a slight favorite against uh, Omari Akhmedov. Then last time around, we just saw him being the much quicker, much more agile fighter against Gerald Mearshart and just landing a beautiful bomb on him, putting him on his butt, and following up with some ground and pound. Here against Calvin, I think Calvin will be able to outstrike him. I think Calvin will be able to keep this fight on the feet. He's a very crafty and nifty, uh, you know, grappler himself, as Calvin I'm talking about. So I think that whatever Heinrich throws at him, uh, Cal uh, Calvin will be able to deal with it. Like, if you guys remember that short Jack Hermanson fight, Hermanson's the one going, going for a body lock takedown, and during the momentum of the of, of the fall, you see Calvin readjust the momentum of it, of it and end up being the one on top. Unfortunately for him, he's just not able to deal with the power of Jack Hermanson off of his back, which is when uh, Jack, you know, rolls for the leg and eventually gets that heel hook. I don't think Ian Heinesh has that in his game. I don't think he has heel hooks in his game. He's not a crazy jujitsu guy. He's only a purple belt. Uh, I think Kelvin will have him beat beat there. Um, again, I don't think with with Heinesh not being super big compared to the past opponents that we've seen Kelvin go up against, I think it favors Kelvin here. Now, this guy almost falls into the realm of guys that Kelvin should go out there and beat at middleweight. Not saying that you know he should lean into it and be like, okay, look, I can still beat guys at middleweight. Uh, this should just be like, okay, these are the types of skills guy, skilled guys that you can beat and you can reach even further peaks if you go out there and uh, actually make that 170 pound limit. Now, 
I expect this to kind of be a high-paced fight with Ian Heinish eventually kind of slowing down later in the fight. I think uh, Calvin Gaston will do a good job of uh, landing big shots on him. And I think he's even live to get a finish here. I think that he could uh, land on the chin of Ian Heinish. We haven't seen Heinish finish inside the UFC, but I don't think we've even seen him fight uh, a striker to the level of Calvin Gastelum. Um, Gaston has power in his hands. We've seen him knock out opponents in the past, notably Michael Bisping as of late. But, uh, you know, he has fast hands. Working over there at uh, Rafael Cordero's Kings MMA gym, as always, he just stays loyal to those guys, which is amazing. Uh, but I do think that uh, Calvin Gaston has all the skills in the world to go out there and beat a guy like Ian Heinish. No matter the improvements that we've been seeing from Heinish, which I'm a fan of, I just think that Gaston is a little bit too far ahead. Now, minus 225, I'd say he's more parlayable than he is to play straight. If you want to get a better uh, line on him, I think there are other guys on this card that you can parlay him with. Uh, and that might be the route that I go. I'm not 100% sure yet. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll wait till weigh-ins and see what these guys look like on the scales. But uh, I do like Gaslam to win this fight. Um, man, I want to say KO, but I'll say uh, I'll go with... Um, Actually, you know what? I will go with Calvin Gaston via KO. I'll say either, uh, let's say, third round TKO for Calvin Gaston. I think he could actually put it on uh, Ian and then eventually put him out late in this fight. So once again, I'll go with three, third round TKO for Calvin Gaston. Alexa Grasso versus Macy Barber. And we got minus 145 on the Mexican and plus 125 on the returning Macy, the future Barbara. Let's start off with her. The last time we saw her was way back at UFC 246, the same night we saw Conor McGregor dispatch of Donald Cowboy Cerrone. That was January of 2020. So we're talking about just over 13 months uh, that she's been off. Uh, and if people remember her last fight against Roxanne Modafferi, where she came in as a minus 1,000 underdog. This is back-to-back -back weekends where we've had minus 1,000 underdogs come back from... Uh, very unfortunate upset last time around but again if you remember what macy barber she tears her knee in the second round of her fight against roxanne modafferi pretty much the first exchange we see roxy um land a jab and the way macy reacts to it you see her knee give out you kind of see her even start clinching at her uh or start pawing at her knee on the way down unfortunately she has to worry about roxanne modafferi who's following her to the ground so she quickly gets her shit back together and starts defending with uh, what uh, Roxanne was throwing at her. We did see some glimpses of success for her even after she tore her uh, knee in terms of being able to reverse Roxanne a couple of times, getting close on submissions. Uh, but for the most part, Roxy was able to get her positions back and land some good damage from on top. Now, that first round as well, when uh, Alexa, or sorry, when uh, Macy Barber's knee was 100%. She still kind of ended up losing that round. We saw the judges still go out there and give that round to Roxanne Modafferi because she was successful in getting the fight to the ground and doing some good work from on top. So I wonder, even if Macy Barber didn't, uh, you know, tear up her knee, uh, how she would have actually looked in that uh, the rest of that fight, because I think that a lot of people are putting a little bit too much of an emphasis on um, on the fact that her knee got torn up obviously it had a little bit of a uh not a little bit but it had a whole lot to do with how the rest of the fight went because we've seen um yeah i just wanted to confirm that all three judges actually gave roxanne that first round because from memory yeah of course they should have but you never know what these judges nowadays but um yeah 
if you guys remember her fight against JJ Aldridge, uh, two fights before that, she gave up that first round as well too. A lot of the judges gave that to JJ, but luckily for Macy Barber, she has that power in her hands and that weird, awkward movement where she's able to get in and out and land some big shots and hurt her opponents. And that's exactly what happened to JJ Aldridge. Um, you know, she dating back to her Jamie Colleen fight, she was on a four fight uh, KO streak from the Contender Series all the way up until the Jillian Robertson fight. And then she runs into Roxanne Mataferi. Now she's like, like her. She looks great, you know what I mean, in terms of uh, the, the, the skills that she brings to the table. Uh, she's only 22 years old. She's been doing it for a long time. That was her first ever loss as well, too. You know, she set high expectations for herself coming into the UFC, saying she wanted to be the youngest ever female champion to do it. Uh, and, you know, she, she looked like she had all the makings of it. You know what I mean? She, uh, she had a solid training camp. She was going up there to do Rufus Sport, training with Ben Askren, trying to round out her game. Uh, and now what we're seeing is actually, uh, I believe she's in the Chicago area, if I'm not mistaken. She's getting in time with Izzy Wrestling, if you guys know him. Uh, Izzy Martinez, I believe his last name is. Uh, done work with Yair Rodriguez. Usually teams up with a lot of Greg Jackson's guys as well, too. Uh, so I don't know if, you know, 100% why she made uh, a complete cam change, but she could be split in time between those two spots as well. So that that's exactly what, be, what could be going on here. I have question marks about Macy, though. Like, I feel like um, she might be biting off a little bit more than she can chew. You know, I mean, she tried making 115 pounds on a regular basis. Now she's up at 125. And that's a constant theme as well in the career of Alexa Grasso. So let's move on over to the Mexican now, who's coming off a win over Ji Yoon Kim, uh, where she came in as a minus 265 uh, favorite. Uh, but she's definitely been put through the ringer a little bit more uh, than Macy Barber has in terms of at least the opponents that she's had to go up against. You know, she came into the UFC with a very uh, huge hype train around her. Um, and, you know, she's falling on a, a little bit of tough times against high-level opponents. And can you really blame her? You know, she's 27 years old and she's, go she's going from fighting, you know, just whatever chicks on the Invicta scene and then comes over to the UFC. And just in her last five fights alone, fights the hella experience. Randa Marcos beats her. I believe that was a split decision. Then they feed her to Tatiana Suarez, where she comes in as a plus 425 underdog. That should give you enough notice as to how that fight went. She ended up getting subbed, I believe, in the first uh, in the first round there. Then she goes on, beats a solid veteran in Karolina Kovalkovich, where she soundly outstruck her all three, uh, all three rounds. Then they give her uh, Carla Esparza in a very, very close fight. I believe it was a majority decision for Carla Esparza. Um, but she showed great resiliency in that fight. You know, Carla was able to complete takedowns, but we did see Alexa Grasso very active off her back, throwing up submissions, trying to get back to her feet. And then when it was on the feet, it was just one-way traffic in terms of Alexa just absolutely piecing up Carla. And that's pretty much all of Carla's fights, right? Whenever she's fighting a striker, she's able to take them down and keep them down. But uh, when it's on the feet, it's just one-way traffic. So, um, you know, good learning experience for uh, for Alexa Grasso there. She shouldn't hold her head too low, off of, or at least off of those two losses. You know what I mean? Tatiana Nermaga Suarez, as I like to call her, uh, is a future title holder. You know what I mean? The only thing holding her back is her injuries. Apparently, she has a neck and spine injury that she's trying to take her time and, uh, you know, recovering, and then she'll eventually come back. I believe I could be mistaken on this, but that might have been Tatiana Suarez's last fight uh, against Alexa, Alexa Grasso. 
And then we see her go out there and, uh, you know, go up to 125 pounds and fight a girl like Ji Yoon Kim who had a two-inch height advantage on her. And even in the cage, it looked like she was obviously the bigger woman. Uh, but Alexa Grasso still did a good job in terms of getting her shots off, showing she was the much crisper boxer and had the faster hands. And she was able to land the better combinations and get her hand raised in a judge's decision. How these two match up now, it's more so, uh, you know, the, the kicking style of Macy Barber with some solid hands behind it uh, against the more crisper striker and Alexa Grasso, who carries some power in her hands as well, too. Now, we saw in the J.J. Aldrich fight from Macy Barber that she did have issues dealing with the person that had some good technical boxing and was able to kind of just stand their ground, let uh, Macy Barber throw her shots, but then just counter with hands. And that's where we saw Macy. I think uh, Aldrich dropped her twice in that first round as well, too. Maybe not like dropped her to the point of rocking her or anything like that, but just, you know, uh, getting her off balance, landing a good enough shot to put her on her butt. With Alexa Grasso, you're easily getting the most talented boxer that she's fought to this point. And I think coming off a significant ACL surgery like she is against uh, with uh, Macy Barber, I think this is a tough task for her to overcome, which is why I understand why the odds are minus 145 plus 125 in favor of Grasso. And I kind of lean Grasso here, to be honest. I think she's a solid favorite. I think that she could come through and show us that, you know, her hands are definitely much better. And unless we see like a... Uh, a Macy Barber that wants to go out there and wrestle and use her jiu-jitsu right off the bat, I think she's going to have some trouble tracking down Alexa Grasso. Now, metrically, they're the same in terms of they're the same height, but Alexa Grasso will have a one-inch reach advantage. Um, so I think it, in terms of the kicking range for Macy Barber, she's going to have to use that a lot more than in uh, in terms of the opponents that she's fought in the past. I mean, Hannah Seifer is probably one of the smallest 115ers. <clears throat> But now we got um, both of them coming up to flyweight and they're going to fight bigger women than themselves. And uh, this is a good fight for them to kind of just get their feet wet against solid competition. But I think this is too much for Barbara, especially coming off such a bad injury. You know, she moves well. She she has a good all-around game. But I think that her kryptonite is going to be somebody that possesses the skill set of an Alexa Grasso, who has great great kickboxing, great boxing, uh, very good defensively as well, too, in terms of staying out of the way of big shots. And then, uh, you know, a great does a great job of getting her combinations off and getting out of the way before eating too much damage. She holds her chin down. She has a great high guard and in terms of strike uh, uh, of a boxer and kickboxer, and I think that's going to cause Macy Barber some problems here when she's not able to land cleanly enough on her. Again, the the issue with the, all of Barber's past opponents is they've just not had the technical savvy of uh, an Alexa Grasso, and I think this is the toughest fight in Macy Barber's career up until this point. So I think we could we do have some solid value on Alexa Grasso uh, all the way up to that minus one fifty point. So I think that she's a solid bet here. Um, you know, this is a good spot to fade Macy Barber in this spot, uh, considering that uh, you know her ACL surgery and this being her toughest test up to date. Like she should have. Like she should have got a Hannah Cyphers type opponent for her comeback. Maybe just throw Barbara Cyphers to there just, just for the hell of it. But I think this is a very, very tough fight for Barbara to come back to. So I'm going with Alexa Grasso. Um, I do think she wins this fight via decision. She's going to go out there and outbox Macy Barber. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to call a finish like we haven't seen Alexa Grasso uh, have a finish within the last several fights. Uh, and Barber is quite durable. I'll give that to her. You know, just watch her last fight. 
but uh, yeah, I'll go with Alexa Grasso to win this fight via decision. Time for the main event. We got the welterweight title on the line. We got champion Kamar Usman going out there and trying to defend his title for a third time against a very familiar foe here in Gilbert Burns. And I say familiar foe as uh, these guys have been trained together for a long time. I think one of the quotes from one of them was that they've put together close to 200 rounds of sparring each other. So they definitely are very, very familiar with one another. In terms of the odds here, we got minus 265 on Usman and plus 225 on Gilbert Burns. Um, this is actually, the I'm recording this on the Wednesday before fight week. Um, so the odds might be different come fight week, but I do expect them to stay relatively around the same range. If anything, I think we'll see some money come in on Gilbert Burns. Uh, but I expect, uh, you know, maybe no higher than minus 275 for Kamaru. Uh, and no lower than minus 200 for Kamaru. If it gets out of whack, you know, if we get uh, Usman better than minus 200, I think that's going to be a bit of a steal. And then anything over that minus 275, minus 300 range, I think would be a little bit too much. So let's let's break it down from, from a stylist, stylistic point of view. And let's start off with the champion who's coming off a successful defense over at Jorge Masvidal. And that was a fight where he was originally scheduled to fight Gilbert Burns. Gilbert Burns pulls out, I do, I believe, due to covid um, yeah, he did test positive for COVID in steps Jorge Masvidal on short notice. And we get a, a, a pretty much a quintessential Kamar Usman fight. Now, a lot of people are almost turned off by that just because of, you know, he, he accrued almost 16 and a half minutes of control time there in the clinch with takedowns, really slowing down the game of Masvidal, trying to nullify the punching power that was coming back his way. Um, and, and he was successful with it. You know what I mean? He had a great fight against Colby Covington. It was like fight of the night, uh, absolute barn burner. You know, both guys throwing like 150 plus strikes. Absolutely insane fight. But if you go back and watch Usman fights, they kind of look like his Jorge Masvidal fight where he just slows it down and just overpowers these guys and uses his wrestling and his grappling to to the best of his abilities. And that's what it looks like. He goes out there and tr- controls the fight for nearly 60% of the fight just by pushing guys up the cage and and wrestling them and and clinch fucking them that's that's an Usman type of game here um we have seen improvements in his striking game that's something that I'll definitely give him credit for and you do have to credit his coach Henry Hooft uh who you know really worked his hands really worked his kickboxing and it's definitely showed off especially in that Colby Covington fight where he was able to drop him with a couple punches and then eventually finish him there now, uh, Usman obviously having to change camps due to the fact that him and Gilbert train out of the same gym. Uh, but one thing to note here, their main head coach, Henry Hooft, won't be in either person's corner, nor will he be training Gilbert Burns for this fight. Gilbert will have his usual suspects in the corner, uh, mainly, I believe, uh, uh, Wagner Hocha and uh, Vicente Luque are the two guys that you guys will probably recognize. But another staple in the corner normally is uh, Jorge Santiago. Uh, if most people remember him, former UFC fighter, former KSW fighter as well too. Um, you know, he was normally in Usman's and Burns' uh, corners. So I don't think we'll see him there either. So what Usman has had to do, and he did it for the uh, Masvidal fight because he thought he was fighting Gilbert Burns. He moved his training camp over to Denver, and I thought it was probably the best thing that he could do. Uh, he started training with Trevor Whitman. You see him in the gym with killers like Justin Gaethje and Eddie Alvarez. Uh, Rose Namajunas jumping in there every now and then, but obviously I'm sure she's not that much of a help to him given the you know difference in size and all that type of stuff. 
Um, but he, he's getting good good training in, especially with a high level coach like Trevor Whitman. We saw what he was able to do with Justin Gaethje in that in that Tony Ferguson fight. Obviously, it could be fight a, a completely different one, but um, I, I trust a guy like Trevor Whitman to go out there and really round out the game of Usman and bring out the best in him as well too. Uh, there were instances where we saw Kamaru go down to even Fortis MMA and get some rounds in with Safe Sayud and some of the killers down there. Uh, I think he even got in a couple of rounds with Carlos Diego Fajera. Um, so I, I, you know, I like I like the approach that Usman is taking here, and I don't. I wonder what it came down to in terms of figuring out who had to leave the gym, but I think. Uh, I think, it, you know, given the fact that we see Gilbert Burns pretty much in the corner of anybody that fights in Sanford MMA, uh, he probably had like, you know, uh, he was probably higher on the picking order, but I don't think it was too much of an issue. Like, it's not like a John Jones and Rashad Evans thing with Jackson Wing from back in the day. I think that once Usman completes his fight, he's definitely going to go back down to Sanford, maybe even split time in Denver now too, given the relationship that he's made with Trevor Whitman. Uh, so from that perspective, I don't think it's a, a huge negative thing. I, I feel like I've been hearing from a couple of the people that they're like, why, f- you know, uh, change what's not broken, but like, you got to take into consideration that, th- that they train at the same gym, right? So that's, that's one thing that people need to recognize. Uh, but again, in terms of supplementing coaching, I think that, uh, Kamaru Usman could have done much, much worse, uh, than, um, then Mr. Trevor Whitman here, who I think is just on the short list of guys I would trust for, especially uh, for a champion, you know what I mean, uh, of Kamaru Usman's level. Now he, like I said, in the Jorge Masvidal fight, we saw a quintessential um, uh, Kamaru Usman fight. And I think that's what what we're gonna see here against Gilbert Burns as well too. I think he'll be the stronger guy, obviously the better wrestler. Now the jiu-jitsu is going to be in Gilbert Burns's realm, but I don't think that we'll see uh, Usman really try to pursue takedowns that often. Uh, maybe try to wear on Burns a little bit, and then once uh, you know Burns is sucking wind, then he'll start to attack the takedowns, kind of like he did against Masvidal as well too. Like the majority of those first two round, two-ish rounds, two and a half rounds, was just Usman pushing him up against the cage, the the classic foot stomps, uh, and really just roughing him up in that aspect. Uh, and then later in the fight, we start to take him down and start to control him from on top. You know, the, the later this fight goes, the more I think it benefits um, Usman here, who's an absolute freak cardio machine that can go 50, 50 minutes if he needs to. Luckily for him, he only needs to go 25. And I think it's going to be very hard to be a guy that has the cardio, wrestling, improving striking and pace like a guy like uh, Kamar Usman. Now let's flip on over to the, the Gilbert Burns side of things here where he's on a bit of an impressive run. I'll give him that. So he... Uh, his his run at 170 pounds actually uh, came to be because he took a short notice fight against Alexei Kunchenko, and that was in August of 2019. So that was uh, four months after he had beaten Mike Davis at 155 pounds. Uh, goes in there, takes Alexei Kunchenko on at short notice, up a weight class, and let's also you know add into the caveat the fact that Gilbert Burns was having a lot of issues cutting down to 155 pounds even to the point that I believe one of the commissions um, scratched him from a fight just because they're like it's not healthy for you to go down to 155 so now he's found a home at 170 he took that fight against Kunchenko on roughly about 10 or 11 days notice and we saw him use his wrestling and his jiu-jitsu to a very good extent and I was very impressed that he was able to hand Alexei Kunchenko's first ever loss in 21 fights so um, that's where we saw the beginning of uh this Gilbert Burns train that's currently rolling along then he goes on out there uh just under two months later goes out there and fights Gunnar Nelson and uh beats him via unanimous decision and if I'm not mistaken he was 
uh, yeah, it, that, that fight was pretty much a pick em fight. But the one thing that concerned me in that fight was the fact that Gunnar Nelson was successful in terms of pushing uh, Burns up against the cage and accruing the amount of control time that he actually had. And I want to get that actual number. So we're getting close to five full minutes that Gunnar Nelson was able to control um, Burns here, especially up against the cage. Uh, obviously, when they were in open space, we saw a lot more uh, pressure and good uh, striking skills from Gilbert Burns. He ends up going out there and outstriking uh, Gunnar Nelson by 10 strikes. Um, significant strikes that is uh, but it was concerning to see a guy like Gunner kind of control him up against the cage the way that he did again it's kind of like an Usman style but uh, you know Usman much bigger has a much better uh, wrestling pedigree a much better clinch pedigree than a Gunner Nelson so I think that if he's having trouble trying to keep Nelson off of him he's gonna have some trouble keeping Usman off of him here too now let's keep the train rolling along his next fight he goes out there and knocks out Damian Maya and you know, uh, I believe he came in as a slight dog there as well, too, if I'm not mistaken. Let me just pull that up as well. I don't want to be talking out of my ass. I got to make sure that my facts are correct here. Actually, he was the minus 170 favorite. I do remember having a little bit of money on him there, but that was a fight where I expected the, the jiu-jitsu to kind of cancel itself out. And we saw a little bit of jiu-jitsu, even though that fight lasted two and a half minutes. We saw Damien get his back. We saw the calm, cool, collected composure from Gilbert Burns in that fight. He was able to escape that position, get back to the feet, and then lands this beautiful left hook. Just beautiful lead left hook that plants Damien Maya on the on his butt, and he follows up with some ground and pound there. But it's Damien Maya. You know what I mean? It's a 40-something-year-old Damien Maya who we know is not a good striker. And we've seen the improving striking from Gilbert Burns' game, so... The longer this fight stayed on the feet, it was just inevitable that he was going to eventually drop him. So yeah, great win for him. But let's reel it back in terms of how ahead of ourselves we're getting now. And then that brings us to our fight with uh, Tyron Woodley that happened in May of 2020. Easily, you know, you could say his best performance because it's, you know, the brightest lights. It was a main event against a former champion. Um, I believe he even, in that fight, he definitely came in as the dog because I got some nice dog money on him. It was plus 150 there. Um, had to take a shot on him there. Definitely knew that was a good spot. And it ended up cashing for me. But if you guys have been following me for a while, you guys know I discredit Tyron Woodley to, like, to the heavens. Like, I don't believe he's a good fighter. I, you know, he, he didn't, he hasn't been relying on his wrestling as much recently as he used to in his like strike for day strike force days but also like you can watch like pretty much the entirety of his career it's all based around that bomb of a right hand that he has if he's not able to land that bomb you know and if he's not able to knock dudes out more than likely he's not winning winning fights like the the one boy thompson fights i'm just writing those fights off like it was such a weird fight thompson was too uh hesitant to close the distance because he was scared of the power and then you know woodley was the one landing the bigger shots at that point in time but more often than not he's the one moving backwards he's the one like hesitant as hell no matter what his coaches try to say in between rounds to try to fire up tyron woodley he shows decent compliance for like 30 seconds of every single round and then it's just back to the normal woodley which is backing up backing up backing up waiting to throw that bomb once he throws that bomb there's just not enough pop on it or he telegraphs it way too much his opponents are able to eat it or even just get out of the way and then get their game going so yeah Gilbert Burns is going to look great against a guy like Tyron Woodley who just doesn't do anything. So we need to reel it back in terms of how good Burns... Like, he looks great, don't get me wrong. His improvements look amazing and all that. But it's almost like um, 
this one kind of hurts to bring up, but it's like the Munir Lazez and Abdul Razak Al Hassan fight where he, he looks amazing in that fight against Razak Al Hassan because Al Hassan just has bombs in that first round, and after that, he's a punching bag that's durable enough to see the judges' scorecards. It's kind of the same thing with Darren Woodley, where he's just like, if he doesn't bomb on you in that first round, he's durable enough to take a beating for the next 20, 25 minutes. Right, so Gilbert Burns was, you know, close to beating him uh, or actually finishing him in that first round. Got a ten eight in that first round, but again, like let's 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 ground ourselves a little bit. It's Tyron Woodley, so when you really go back and look through this run that Gilbert Burns is on, you might have to just try to center yourself and be like, okay, maybe you know the the hype that we're seeing on Burns on social media and all this type of stuff is being a little bit overblown, and maybe Usman should be a bigger favorite. Maybe. Now I love Usman in this spot. The, the Usman is a far cry from anything Gilbert Burns has fought in the octagon to this point. Yeah, they've trained together numerous amounts of time, but I don't think that it's going to matter much once he, the cage door locks. You know I mean, sure, Burns might know some of the tendencies or inefficiencies in Usman's game, but vice versa, it works the same way. Usman knows the deficiencies and, and, and flaws in Gilbert Burns' game. But I think the better fighter is going to win here, and in my opinion, the better fighter is Kamar Usman. His, again, his wrestling, his pace, his pressure, um, his strength, it's going to be too much for Gilbert here. Now, Gilbert looked great going 25 minutes against Tyron Woodley because he had nothing to deal with in return. You want to look at the statistics? Let's talk about the statistics. Gilbert Burns, uh, 83 strikes landed on uh, Tyron Woodley uh, compared to the 28 strikes that Tyron Woodley landed on him. And just for comparison's sake, let's look at what Kamaru Usman did to uh, Tyron Woodley. Usman landed 141 strikes uh, compared to Tyron Woodley. He only landed 34. Uh, and Usman accrued 18 minutes of control time in that fight, whereas Gilbert Burns was only able to accrue uh, 8 minutes. So 10 minutes less than what Usman was able to do. Again, two totally different approaches. But again, I, I think Usman hasn't beat here. I, I just don't see where uh, Burns will, will truly be able to beat him. Like, the durability of Kamar Usman is amazing. He's never been knocked down in the UFC. He's eaten some shots from his opponents, but never been knocked down. Um, and again, once I once the, the pace and the pressure of Usman really starts to catch up to Burns, I truly believe we're going to see Burns start to slow down and the, the, the takedowns won't be as hard or it won't be as much of a threat to kind of just ride Gilbert Burns on top for those last two rounds. Um, but I think that's really going to catch up to Burns because he's never really dealt with that type of pressure and pace in the cage. Again, maybe in the, the practice room, it's a completely different thing. But when you're talking about in the cage, live fighting, it's hard to find anybody that's going to be able to match Kamaru Usman. I think the only person that will be able to is Colby Covington. And we saw how that fight went. However, I think that rematch would go, you know, I think that th that fight is, is a very close fight no matter how many times they fight. Like if you guys remember, the judges' scorecards going into that fifth round was 3-1 Colby, 3-1 Usman, and 2-2. So it was literally as split down the middle as you can make it. Uh, and Usman obviously looked like he was going on to win that decision regardless. But uh, yeah, I think Colby Compton is the only true um, test for Usman at this time. Maybe Hamza Chemaev, depending on how he pans out. But uh, he has to still go out there and fight a guy like Leon Edwards and see if he's actually a legit guy, right? Um, but yeah, Usman is just... An absolutely different animal. I think this guy's going to go on and, and break records at welterweight. I think he's just going to be one of the greatest welterweights of all time. And you can say what you want about him not being um, uh, him not being fun or entertaining. That's what they used to say about GSP as well, right? So 
these guys go out there they get the they get the job done they get their hand raised no matter how it is they get their hand raised and that's what i'm expecting here from uh from usman as well so i'll go with usman to win this fight via decision um i will be looking to play him i might play that by decision prop uh but we'll see but i think that there's um yeah, I, I like Usman here. I, I just don't see how he loses this fight. I don't think Burns knocks him out. I think Usman's going to be too savvy to, to you know, get submitted here. And then I think by maybe over two and a half round mark, we'll see Burns start to suck wind a little bit and that pace and pressure start to catch up with him. And then Usman's just going to continue to drown him uh, for the remainder of that fight. So I got Kamaru Usman to win this fight via decision. And those are the breakdowns. As always, I appreciate your support. If you haven't already, make sure you like and subscribe this video. Uh, you know, it helps your, helps your boy out a ton. Uh, also, make sure you guys uh, hit up CoolBet if you guys are in Canada or the other uh, countries that are listed in the description below. Great uh, offer there. They 100% match your initial deposit all the way up to 200 bucks. Um, again, make sure you guys use the promo code MMALOTN2. That's the number two. Uh, and then check out the Patreon and Patreon link in the description below five bucks a month a ton of value on that as well and then uh, I'll see you guys throughout the week we got the the DFS show that I'm going to be dropping hopefully on Thursday afternoon um, the propping you up show Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern with me and Cody Saftik the final weigh-in show uh, at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fridays with the odds crew and then Saturday 1 p.m. Eastern with the um uh, with the MMA Lockcast Live episode. All right, ton of content coming to you guys this week. Appreciate the support as always. I'll see you guys next or throughout the week. Uh, but in terms of the MMA Lockcast, we'll see you guys next Monday. Appreciate the support as always. Good luck on your bets, and uh, I'll see you guys throughout the week.